Chris gonna show you a thing or two. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends in Oral Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California. They were founded by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Oro is an amazing place. Their mission is to treat addicts and alcoholics by using compassion and connection rather than control. Everybody that I've ever heard say anything about Oro has only said good things, which is really meaningful in an industry where they don't say good things about lots of places. And most importantly, the people that I know that have paid money for Oro have only said good things. It's incredible. Their detox is as comfortable as it can be. Their staff knows as much as you can know about co-occurring mental disorders as you can. Amenities through the roof, fucking sound bath meditation, surfing, the spiritually potentially transformative sweat lodge, Hard times, transformative times, and good times ultimately are what you get at Oro Recovery. Check them out at ororecovery.com. And if you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, let's go. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the good people at Sober Buddy. I've become quite a member of the Sober Buddy team. I love Sober Buddy. Every Wednesday morning, we do a Sober Buddy Zoom. And I'm going to say this. I know you guys aren't necessarily going to believe me. Every Zoom we do feels better than the last. They all feel incredibly helpful, uh, satisfying. Our group is super tight. If you're free on Wednesday mornings at 9, you should come. If you're looking for extra tools to your recovery tool bag, please check out Sober Buddy. It's an app. It is, it's a social media platform where people help you get and to stay sober, and it's a community of addicts in recovery. You can get it at YourSoberBuddy.com. You can sign up at the App Store or the Google Play Store. First 30 days can be free, free trial, but the whole thing is like 12 bucks a month. Think about how many coffees you might drink in a month. And Sober Buddy is a pretty incredible thing. So check them out. We're there on Wednesdays. They do 11 other Zooms during the week that could be better than ours. I doubt it, but it could be. So if you're going to get a sober app, get Sober Buddy. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, let Soberlink help you. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify your identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and it sends results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test, 
and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and receive an exclusive $50 off your first device promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com slash dopey. Now, here's the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I'm home. I'm super excited for another episode of Dopey. This is a, a real, like, special episode with not only Lowe's from Brutal Recovery, but Paulina Pinsky, and the name Pinsky might be familiar to you because that's right, it's Dr. Drew's daughter, Paulina. Lowe's is going to pop in in a second. I just wanted to greet you guys. Wish you guys well. Hope everybody's doing really good. DopeyCon is coming October 7th. Many tickets are sold. It is exclusively available on Patreon. Join Patreon if you want to buy a DopeyCon ticket for now. Then we'll put it on sale in a couple weeks. But if you love Dopey and you want to support the show, join Patreon. I just put up a special video with my friend Greg. I recorded a bonus episode with my friend Greg that I'm going to put up, kind of a hip-hop-related bonus episode. I'm going to Park City this week, fucking scrambling. I know about hip-hop. It's going to be exciting. If you're in Utah, come to Park City. DopeyCon is brought to you by so many sponsors, but one of the sponsors that's putting on DopeyCon is the Phoenix and the Phoenix is an incredible organization. It's a nonprofit. It's totally free. If you are looking for sober activities in your community, go to thephoenix.org slash dopeypodcast and go get active. We're also going to start doing some storytelling events with the Phoenix towards Christmas. If you're looking to get into a pickleball league, go to the Phoenix. The Phoenix believes recovery is best when you are having fun, and so do we, and we are so honored to have the Phoenix as part of the Dopey family. Now, I want to read a fucking email, and then we will get to Lowe's and Paulina Pinsky. Paulina Pinsky is pretty fiery, and so is Lowe's. But let me just read an email. I've been getting so many nice, nice things. Oh, this is from Ronnie. I got a voicemail and an email from Ronnie. Uh, hey, Dave, you've talked about it in pieces on the show. I'm wondering what the shift looked like to you. You mentioned on episode 204 that you walked into a meeting and your dad picked you up after, that you didn't want people to see you get into your dad's car, but you implied that maybe you went to Long Island and sobered up. Can you explain when and how that transformation happened? Yeah, I remember that very well. It was when I first got sober. Um, I didn't get sober on Long Island. I got sober in Manhattan, and uh, I was living on the Lower East Side, and I went to uh, my—the only way I was allowed to visit my daughter was if my dad drove me there and supervised the visit. And I was going to a 7.30 in the morning 12-step meeting on Houston Street, 
And I remember it really well. It was a big book meeting, and I read a piece of the big book. I remember the slats of sunlight going into the dusty church. And then I left the church, and I got into my dad's car, and I think I was just, you know, it's like it's embarrassing to have your dad pick you up. And because there's a lot of cool people in the meeting, I think I I felt like I wasn't cool because my dad was picking me up. And I think I was ashamed that I couldn't see my daughter without my dad being with me. Um, Ultimately, I did get sober and I got to visit my daughter without him, which was great. And um, and soon after that, Linda and I got back together. And I mean, it was around then that we started making Dopey in the first place. It's really interesting, really interesting to look back at all that. I'm going to play Ronnie's voicemail. Here's Ronnie. We've kind of been in touch with Ronnie as he's been getting better. And I'm going to read this note first. And it says, yo, I'm stable, finishing off day nine. I have the humility and understanding to do this, man. It was such a trip. When I had this psychosis moment, I was already dead. And you and Chris and the guys from It's All Bad were coming into my apartment to see ghosts. Chris had already passed at this time, but he was with you. And so was Russian Danning and a few of the cats from It's All Bad. wonder if Reno was there. I saw demons and sorcery and the craziest shit, and I thought until I was in four-point restraints, and I thought until I was in four-point restraints being sedated at the hospital that I was actually dead, and you guys were on a spooky quest to hear ghosts. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, I'm on day nine, feeling a bit more like myself and a little less dopey. I'm getting to meetings, being honest with my sponsor, meditating in the morning and calling an addict sometime during the day. That checklist you talked about really is indispensable. I refuse to be a victim and die from this disease. Your show gives me so much perspective and so much hope. Thank you for checking in, Dave. Much love and stay strong, dopey nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. Here, Here's his voicemail. What is up, Dopey Nation? Dave, um, Ronnie here. Uh, just taking a quick break at work. And I know you and I have been kind of emailing a little bit back and forth. And you read my email on um, the latest Christmas episode, which just meant the world to me, dude. Um, when I wrote you that email, I was just in a really dark place. And, um, just feeling really alone man and um and yeah you know I was like four days away from my 90 day chip and uh you know threw threw it away I guess you know um and uh you know had a relapse and yeah uh the emotional backlash from all that shit I'm still trying to process it um I'm, I'm, I'm going to meetings every day. I'm trying to call an addict or th- two or three every day. Um, I'm trying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to meditate and do the things like you had mentioned the checklist, right? Like, so I'm, I'm just like really committing to like this checklist because it is a simple program, right? It's, it's not this like complex fucking shit like you said in the email um it's just making a decision every day and you just make that decision for today just for today i'm not gonna pick up no matter fucking what and then days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months and whatever so yeah man um today is day let's see shit i spent five days in the icu 
got out on Saturday. Today's Tuesday, so yeah, I think I'm at like day seven clean. Um, I've just restarted so many times that like I've stopped. Like I've got that stupid like clean time counter app on my phone, right? And like I've just like stopped like resetting the date because I've just reset it so many fucking times. It's like just embarrassing, right? Like why? Whatever, dude. I I just like I'm done pitying myself. I'm just gonna fucking do the work and like try to like love myself a little bit more and have some some self-compassion and dude I just love your show so much um it's gotten me through so many sleepless nights and detoxes and loneliness and I just relate so much with what you guys what what you guys have to offer and what you share and the way that you speak um so love you man uh, Dopey Nation, stay strong and fucking toodles for Chris. So that's Ronnie. We are rooting for you, Ronnie. And uh, haven't heard from you in a little bit, but we are rooting for you. Hope you're doing well. Anyone in early recovery, we're rooting for you. Just fucking do the thing and uh, and send in voicemails and emails so we can document your struggle and your success. Here, I got this note on Instagram. I voluntarily put myself in Snowden at Mary Washington in Fredericksburg for opioid addiction and suicidal ideation. It's an outpatient mental health facility, and the second day they put me on Subutex three times a day, and I'm still a sick degenerate. So what I would do is pat underneath my tongue with toilet paper before we got our meds, and I'd have an almost completely dry mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and then they gave me the Subutex. T- I didn't understand this when I first read it. Pat dry his mouth. And then they gave me the Subutex uh, tablet. Um, I put it under my tongue and showed them quickly. Went back to my room and into the bathroom. I had folded a little boat thing with construction paper, like how you fold a dollar bill up to crush down pills. I'd spit the Subutex out, dry it off with toilet paper just to be safe, Then I'd crush it down and snort it using a little straw I made with construction paper because I wasn't ready to stop shoving pharmaceuticals up my nose. And that's just a weird Instagram message. And I'm going to read this last one, and then we're going to get to Lowe's. All right. Um, Damn, dude. And this is is about uh, Jessa Reed. Jessa Reed will be at DopeyCon. So if you're a Jessa Reed fan, you want to go to DopeyCon, join Patreon, buy a ticket to DopeyCon, see Jessa Reed and Mackenzie Phillips, and Dr. Drew, and a number of people. Storytelling Slam, fucking Ray Brown, Aaron Carr, my dad. It's going to be a great time. Catered by Katz's. DopeyCon is going to be exciting. Anyway, DopeyCon IV with more IV. Okay, here we go. Damn, dude. I'm halfway through, and I can't wait for my commute tomorrow so I can keep listening. She's really bringing the dopey for sure. Man, I and that's Jessa Reed. Man, I hope you get to make the amends at the Park City Song Summit with Bob Weir. I don't remember the whole story, but it's something you've talked about a lot, and it seems possible. Plus, it's like worlds colliding with Chuck D, Run DMC, and then throwing a little Grateful Grateful Dead for balance. You remember Montana? I do. The kid in Austin you connected me with when he was in Sober Living. He's still in jail, and every time I write him a letter, I fuck up just enough for them to return it to me and then make me send it again. He always asks about the show, and more specifically, Jay. He feels a connection there. Parallel lives. 
He's hoping to get out before the holidays while he waits to be indicted. He's definitely looking at having to do some real time, but he's sober, even trying to do a fourth step with no meetings and a sponsor by mail situation, which isn't ideal. A mini dopey story for me. I was on a camping trip in 2019 with about 60 people in Austin, Texas area. I was sober, but white knuckling it, and I knew I was going to relapse on the trip. So the second night, I started drinking, but everybody else was tripping, rolling, whatever. This girl, who was completely stoned, accidentally called 911 and then hung up. They called back immediately, and she was too fucked up to answer. So she kept just letting it ring until finally I answered it, and it became my job to convince the cops not to respond to her call. We were on private property and in no condition to deal with a visit from cops. The operator needed to talk to her, but she was freaking out and kept starting to run away. So I got some other woman I had just met that day to pretend to be the girl whose phone it was and somehow convinced them it was a false alarm. Pretty tame compared to making your own teeth by while tweaking out, but it's all I've got. Toodles. Yes, and thank you for the note, and fucking Mon- tell Montana that we are fucking rooting for him as well, and thank you. Uh, I don't have your name because I was scared you didn't want me to say it. I just want to say before we get to Lowe's, if you like podcasts about recovery, check out Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings, if the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts. And also, there's a podcast called Talk to Tall, where I went on Talk to Tall, and Tall was the mysterious guest we had on Dopey a few weeks ago who uh, flatlined in Bloomingdale's. So check that out. I was also on the Got Myself a Pod, The Wire podcast discussing the Crescendo episode of, uh, I think, season three of The Wire where uh, Stringer gets executed. So check out Pod Yourself a Gun, The Wire. Check out Talk to Tall. Check out Recovery in the Middle Ages, and here is the one and only Lowe's and me from Brutal Recovery on Instagram. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Lowe's of Brutal Recovery traveled to America with her boyfriend, (laughs) Chris, and the two of them are in my apartment. Chris is sequestered in another place. Welcome to my dad's apartment, Lowe's. Good to be here. I'm so 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 excited. Like, it's absolutely unbelievable because like we've done we've done what like uh, several shows, th- at least four, three, yeah, three or four, three, four, and it's been like me and various uh, houses online. And it's beautiful. I'm so grateful to be here. You are an international alcoholic addict recovery celebrity. Are when you come to New York, are there any other folks pining to meet you? Oh my in god! In the scene. <laughs> So I've got, you know, because I got sober in Connecticut, right? So um, a lot of my friends that I got sober with uh, now 
live in New York. Like they, they kind of, a lot of my friends like in, uh, you know, I've got a friend who's like a lighting designer and she like was studying at Yale and now she's in, uh, she's on Broadway. She's done very well for herself. I'm very proud of her. So like, um, gonna go see her and then like a friend who like still lives in Connecticut uh, or thereabouts. So she's coming up like later on today to like come and hang out. Um, I've got an, another friend that I met in Indiana um, that, that's coming. So like, it's, it's, yeah, like th- these are just like kind of my pals. These aren't people like in any sort of like business, but like th- this is a very, 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 social trip like I'm seeing like just a lot of people because like when I left America I was under the impression that I was going to come back as soon as I could um I left America like uh, to move to London with a boyfriend who was American and we thought like okay well right out the pandemic he was getting his master's degree and then we just go back and like I don't know live with his parents and get like a green card um and then we moved to London we broke up um I realized I loved London uh, I met Chris, uh, and now I'm like, okay, <laughs> I guess I live here now. <laughs> so, so like, these are friends that like I haven't seen in about three years, uh, four years, three, four years, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just wonderful to be back. Does anyone in the brutal recovery world know you're here? Yeah, I went to uh, like. I'm a morning meeting girly, like, and I went to a morning meeting in the area that I'm staying. And uh, yeah, I met someone that I met through the zooms that I knew through like uh, COVID Instagram. Like there's been a couple of, of things like that. And I've not been on grid a lot uh, this week because uh, one, I don't have data on my phone because uh, my phone doesn't work in America. Uh, and, and two, just I've, I've been very present. I've been practicing presence and just, you know, enjoying the world around me. But yeah, word kind of got out. And like, yeah, this morning I got about four or five texts from people being like, oh my God, you're in town. Come to this meeting. So. Something something really <laughs> weird just happened before you came here, right? Oh, yeah. So I I grew up in this building mm-hmm. and the thing they tell you is you don't let strangers into the building because like you know it's and it's also like only old people live here it's like uh, it's like a senior citizen community at this point but back then it's like that's a thing in new york city you don't let strangers in to the building but my whole life i didn't care i let anybody in if they were behind <laughs> me i let them in and i just i was i don't know i was working and i got really hungry and i knew you were coming so i ran out and i got food and I came in and there's a dude standing by the door and I didn't like the look of him. His ankles were really swollen. Like, Ooh, like you know, he, like he's yeah. been shooting in his feet. Like it looked like that. And he had an ankh tattooed on his temple. And I was like, I don't like the look of this. And I opened the door and I said, I said, dude. And he's like coming right in with me. I said, dude, do you live here? I never said that. Wow. I said, do you live here? And he said, no. And he said, but my, I have friends here. Okay. And I said, then go ring them up. <laughs> I said, I can't let you in. And then I closed the door and I felt like, have I matured? Is this good? Is this bad? Am I? And then I, then I did, I took it one step further. Oh my God. And when I got in the elevator, I hit the intercom and I was like, security, there's a weird, weird guy downstairs with thick ankles and a <laughs> onk tattooed on his face. Uh, but I felt a little snitchy. Right. I mean, I, it's really, really like, I, this is, this is a difficulty that I have for myself because like, obviously as a, like, former juvenile delinquent and like lunatic like and like you know I I talk about this all the time like you know my my addiction my mental health issues like they weren't cute like I was not like this cute wee girl no my favorite stuff is your bar brawls yeah throwing (laughs) stools in the bar in the pub I was like anti-socially insane like and that's why I really 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 admire like people that are able to keep their uh, like people that are like yeah my unmanageability was like internal do not relate so it's like when I see people who are like uh, you know like someone that we would like perhaps judge or like intuit like what's going on there like I if, if 
I feel like judgment or trepidation. Like I start to like think like, oh no, but like that's also like me in another dimension. Like, it that's is, me. absolutely. And so I do worry and like, um, so something I like, I, I'm I'm getting mad snitchy like uh, about parcel thieves because like you know you just go up and you like you buzz and you're like, I like delivery. I like both those things, mad snitchy and parcel thieves. <laughs> you can be a parcel. Oh, okay, I shouldn't be telling people how to parcel thief, uh, but yeah, you can just buzz any building, go in, snatch all the parcels, and leave. And people have been doing it in my building. So like anytime someone buzzes like says delivery, I'm like, who's the phone? What's the postcode? Like, give me the more information. And then, like, if they pass that test, I'll, like, I let them in. And I was talking to, like, one of my friends. And I was like, oh, my God, can you believe how bad the parcel thieving is in this area? And he was like, yeah, I was doing that eight months ago. And I was like, oh, yeah. like He was parcel thieving. He was parcel thieving. <laughs> and, like, if I knew what parcel thieving was, uh, like, five and a half years ago, I would have been parcel thieving. I don't know if parcel thieving was a thing. I, You know what I always think about? is when I go to restaurants or even a coffee shop, like where I get coffee on Long Island, the dude doesn't want to make me coffee when I go in. He's like, why don't you just order on your phone and pick oh. it up? And I got really annoyed, but then I was like, okay, I'll do that. So I started doing that and just showing up and picking it up. And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and then I was like, you know, I could probably just, then I went to a meeting actually, my sponsor's sitting with me and he looks at my coffee and he goes, who's Gina? <gasps> because I had taken Gina's coffee by a mistake, but I had paid for my coffee. I wasn't parcel thieving or coffee thieving, <laughs> but you can go into any restaurant at this point and just take a bag of food because everything is just waiting for everybody now. So it's right. a new age in theft mm -hmm. potential. I don't know. I've probably talked about this on, uh, on Zopi before and because I keep saying it and like the, the thing that I miss the most uh, about being, like, active uh, yeah being active and like you know not having a moral compass is i really miss shoplifting I've, i bet i've said to that before and like it's so i can't when's the last time you shoplifted probably um i did shoplift into sobriety just like makeup largely um like little things that i could like you know slip in uh, so it's probably been about four and a half years like i've not shoplifted in the uk since i was a teenager but i was shoplifting uh oh no oh what'd you do oh chris just was looking I, I shoplifted some cheese twists at marks and spencer uh because i like it was really stressful there were so many people and like i couldn't get all of my shopping through so i just shoved them in it was a self-checkout so i just shoved them in oh um, my goodness i know but like when that did that happen it was, it was a couple of months ago and i was like I, we went to bed and i was like chris I, i'm going to tesco tomorrow and i'm overpaying for two cheese twists did you do it no of course i didn't Lows. it's weighing on me oh my god you're gonna be like you're gonna have a needle in your <laughs> neck in a second right that down right that down i need to i need to get right with god about this like it's so bad and it's two cheese twists they're about 98p each but like I, I can't live with it what are cheese twists and what is a pea a penny <laughs> so 98 cents 98 cents it's like a dollar 70 or something yeah something like that oh there's so much money oh my god i'm spiraling wait hold on what is a cheese twist it's like a pastry it's like it's like uh Sounds good. Cheese in. It's delicious. They're amazing. Some of them have a wee bit of mustard in them. It's lovely. It's like my morning snack of choice. Um, and we're going for a picnic, like a really glorious, like we're going to watch a fucking opera. And here's me, like shoplifting the cheese twists. Stealing gives you such a great feeling of power and freedom, <laughs> entitlement, accomplishment. It's crazy the yeah. shit that happens in your brain. You know, it's, it, I take it to the, because I grew up like, you know, poor like i have this feeling of like i deserve this like and because like i've been fighting like a 
dog like and this was so funny about coming back to america like all of my favorite things are things like 7-eleven coffee and hot pockets and uh i hop because i had no fucking money so like all of the things that i did frequently were like because i had no money so i still in my head even though like i, I do make money now like i have a job and i i still in my head think that the world may owe me a living and uh that you know, like I've been working so hard since the day I was born. I deserve this. Like this is for me. Well, maybe you do. You know, I, <laughs> I don't I, think I do. <laughs> listen, I, I think uh, I don't steal. I haven't stolen in a long time. I don't remember the last time I stole. But I mean, I I used to steal just like I had to. Like yeah. I mean, like I don't even mean like I stole because I didn't have money, and I did steal. Because I didn't have money, but I also stole if I had money. Mm. I stole because I lo- I really loved stealing. <laughs> My dad listens to the show, and he like he's just shocked at how much I used to shoplift. Mm. Like I think I've said it with you once. I didn't go shopping at a supermarket without stealing a yellow pepper. And I'd come out of the supermarket, I'd take it out of my hoodie and I'd go, the golden pepper. (laughs) You know, it was like this fucking thing. I also like, I also got banned from half the stores in this neighborhood for stealing cookies, Mm -hmm. for stealing cereal. uh, And I would steal stuff like that. And it's interesting, all of the stores that I got banned from now are shut down. So that's like a weird, no, 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 Lowe's. They lasted years after I stole from them. One was a huge chain and the other was a very wonderful Korean deli. I don't think I put them out of business. That was my fucking favorite place. It's called Kyung's. It was a Korean deli on 25th and 8th. They had flowers outside. I would always steal these cookies <laughs> called Hit. And it was like, nice. it was a chocolate sandwich cookie. And I would put them in a bowl and I'd pour milk on it and eat it as cereal, just cookies. That sounds delicious. It was incredible. That sounds really good. They banned me. It was a very sad day. Yes. Oh, I remember how that store smelled. I loved that store so much. Mm. And I only wanted to live in neighborhoods. I lived in a lot of different neighborhoods, but I didn't want to live in a neighborhood with a bodega that didn't have flowers outside. Wow. That's that's how bougie I am. I'm so bougie <laughs> that I couldn't do heroin without cable TV. I would have I would have gotten sober <laughs> had I not had cable. I'm not a, like a street person. I wouldn't have made it. We need our little creature comforts. I need know? it. Yeah, like, I live for. I'm things. very 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 bougie. Um, <laughs> it's very exciting. Your book is is your first draft is done. Yeah. How yeah. do you feel? So I, f- I feel really, um, oh, there is a sense of accomplishment about it because uh, I, you know, this is, this has been quite a long time in the making, right? Because I, I wanted to be a writer when I was a very small child. I wrote my first hit novel. It was about three pages on my dad's like desktop computer on the kitchen table. And it was about a mermaid. And I remember like printing it out and like stapling it and just thinking like, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm a writer. Yeah, like Siren of the Sea. That was the name of my first Amazing. book. I had clip art. Um, Amazing. So like, and then and then obviously like I kind of uh, benched that to like follow like you know music and and then that was really great. And then that kind of ran its course. And then I was just hungry to start writing again. And this was my my sponsor. Like is she's one of the most incredible women I know obviously I would think that but like you know she's she's an exceptionally honest to the point one might say brutal woman uh and Wait, say that again one might say she is a brutal woman and a brittle woman brutal brutal my whole thing brutal did it come from her no it didn't that was <laughs> no. I think I'm I don't know if I would have preferred it if she was brittle <laughs> she's 
<laughs> she's certainly not brittle. She is, uh, she'll outlive us all. She's, uh, oh God, I love her so much. Uh, anyway, so she, like, I was moaning about how I didn't have a book deal and I didn't, you know, I couldn't be a writer and I was just like, it's going to be so hard. It's like, and I don't have an MFA. What am I going to do? I thought you have an MFA in singing. Yeah, no? I, I've got an MMA, Master MMA. of Musical Arts. All right. Um, Humble brag (laughs) from Yale. From Yale. No, if no one can understand what she's saying, (laughs) she has a master's in musical art from Yale. Um, Yeah. So, so my sponsor was like, "Well, you want to be a writer, right?" And I was like, "I've been yes, like that's what I've been saying." And she's like, "Why aren't you writing?" And I was just like, "Uh, "Oh, I don't know." Like, and I've been waiting for someone to like say give me permission so then I started like uh this this was about a year and a half ago I just started writing for like three hours every day like it went up to three hours it didn't start at three hours but like I had a very rigorous like writing practice that's why I wake up so early and then I just didn't know what to do because I was like well how does one wait how rigorous is your writing practice it's uh it's very well for me it's consistency like I do it every day no just break it down because I'm sure there's a lot of aspiring writers in and out of this room (laughs) Oh my god! So okay, I, it's important for me to uh, read as much as I write. So I read, but uh, for me, I need to read like very varied uh, texts. So I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of stuff that I uh, don't like. Does listening to audiobooks count as reading? I mean, you say no. I don't say no, but like I. You, your, your, your voice says no. <laughs> but yes, but your eyes say no. Listen, listen. Do you remember we did that episode with uh, Johan Hari? Of course. Right. Like, re- like, I don't agree. He's a royalist, so I don't agree with everything he says. But I Johan do- Hari never got back to me. He, like, <laughs> he did that whole social media business, and then he's on social media, and I asked him to promote. He says he's not on social media, he's lying. Like, I don't know. There might be Dopey Nation. Get ready. There might be a beef with Johan. Oh, my God. I wish I could get involved and we can talk about royal family. Uh, No, this isn't the podcast. What is a royalist? Someone that loves the royals. He loves the royals? Yeah, it's just bullshit. I think I'm starting a beef with Johan Hari right now. (laughs) I think that's happening. I brought that on. Like, I'm so happy I instigated beef. Normally, Uh, I'm such a pathetic, brown-nosing, fucking sycophant. But eventually I get pushed too far. And how many more books can Johan Hari have that I need to have him come on the show? Maybe I have no use for Johan Hari anymore. I think, I think you've uh, bypassed the need for Johan Hari. But I will say, I do like what he says about monotasking and what he says about reading, like to build your focus. I'm going to say this. That fucking book is incredible. I have nothing bad to say about his work. I have something bad to say about him. <laughs> Which is that, like, he wrote two books. I'm just going to go into this for a second. Oh, I'm so excited. One book he wrote was about addiction, mm-hmm. and one book he wrote was about attention. Mm-hmm. And when I had him on, I said, well, do you see a relationship between addiction and attention? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. What? And I was like, dude, well, why don't you try to come up with something? <laughs> and he's like, I'm absolutely knackered right now. And like, it was like, <laughs> I remember, I, I think I was getting a stomach flu at the time, mm. but right when that interview was over, I vomited for about a half an hour and it might've been Johan Hari. I mean, this is the people. biggest dopey beef in like five years. <laughs> You've just created. So congratulations. I have effects on people. I'm a <laughs> people don't like him either. Yeah, well, he's a- Play, I mean, Potential plagiarist. He's a potential plagiarist. Like there was that whole thing. Um, he 
uh, he he's like an ADHD denier, like an ADHD denier. Yeah, I, I don't I, I do not wade into that. Me um, neither. I, I, I'm sure I, I have just... it, but untreated, of course. <laughs> I, I have uh, absolutely nothing to say about that. I'm so ADHD, I fucked up your whole story. Let's get back to the story. What even was the story? You were talking about <laughs> the book, I think. And you mentioned Johan Hari. Yeah, oh yeah, but I remember, I remember, I remember. We were talking about like- um, I want to say thank you to Johan Hari for coming on the show twice and not promoting it once. Back to you, Lowe's. I want to say, fuck you, Johan Hari. There we go. Now we're cooking with gas. <laughs> no uh right so yeah so for me it's really important uh craft discipline is really important to me right uh i'm i'm a i'm a child of the classical music tradition so like i was taught from a very young age you have to really give to your craft you have to build craft you and the, by the, the only way you build craft is you can't intellectualize it you just have to do it so for me um I'm, I'm a Pomodoro user, so I'll do like... Pomodoro? You know those wee, like, uh, the, the wee tomatoes, right? Yes. Like, it's 25 minutes. Yeah. Wait, so, wait, 25 minutes? What's 25 minutes? You, so I focus for 25 minutes. Take What's Pomodoro's for 25 minutes? Well, Pomodoro is the technique. It's a Pomodoro technique. Where I think the guy's name was Pomodoro or, I don't know, something to do with tomatoes. And he, like, there's... I don't, I don't fucking know. Um, he... <laughs> So you work for 25 minutes, then you take a break for five, then work for 25 and five. So that's like the Pomodoro method. So okay. It's like focus is only useful for a certain amount of time. So that you got to take wee breaks. And like for, for me, like being an extremely obsessive, hyper-focused person, like I, I burn myself out really, really, really quickly. And then uh, like I'm, I'm, also, I'm also very prolific. Like I can do a lot because I just get so obsessive. So for me, like I break up. So usually like wake up, meeting morning routine and then i'll write to about uh from about like 10 to lunch break at 12. chris has in, uh, installed lunch breaks into our day because in my head i'm like i'm not a human i don't need to eat food uh so i started having lunch we're all very proud of me and lunch is really important it's one of the three most important meals of the day i resent having to eat so much like because in my head like i just want to i just want to write and vibe and just do well, what do you how do you make a living <laughs> you're lunching you're fucking writing from 10 to 2 where's the how do you and, and then i go to work at three that's like okay. my father listens to the interviews and he's like well that's all well and good but how do they make a living that's what he asked me after every interview okay dave's dad uh, i i'm I, I teach music right. uh, to small rich children nice he'll like he'll yeah. like that <laughs> does he'll he like. approve okay I'm, I'm in his i'm in his house right now so i've got to you know he will like that so the book is going to come out. There's, is it going to be called Brutal Recovery? So you, it's not going to be called Brutal Recovery. Is it going to be called Brittle Recovery? It's Brittle Recovery. <laughs> um, no, they, they, so we're working on a title. I originally wanted to call it The Unexpected Brutality of Being Sober. Um, and when I got sober, I was like 25. I, even though I had a master's degree from Yale, uh, I didn't know how to do anything. I couldn't stop cutting myself. I couldn't stop like uh, shoplifting. I couldn't stop. Any, anything. And so the book that I'm creating is a little bit more for, you know, the, I keep saying the girlies, but like, I, I do want it to be for all genders as well, because it's it's just like, I want, I want a book out there that kind of speaks just more to like the more angsty, like, you know, and, and my, I, I always make it very clear, like my sobriety is very joyful. Like I have a fucking joyful life now. Clearly. Like, oh, I'm You've a laughed more than anyone has ever laughed on this show. I, I know. Think. I just can't believe it. It's fucking hilarious. Uh, I'm in New York right now. I should be dead. Uh, so like, yeah. So, but I just want to like kind of create like a book where it's like, do you know what? Like, it's actually okay to feel like shit right now. Don't stop. 
like we go and keep on going but like if you feel like you've lost the horizon it's okay like just you know and it just gives like practical advice and like also like kind of uh, modernize some of the quitlet that's out there because like for me like quitlet's always been like these very ethereal 40 something women that like uh, came into sobriety like because they needed to like fix their life and like for for me like I got sober because I couldn't establish a life like I, I just was my uh, I had a really quick acceleration that's not everyone's story but it was mine but like yeah like I just everything that I did like nothing could stick so like there is and that's you know in late stage capitalism in the idea that we need to get three degrees before we can get like a minimum wage job like there's young sober people who are philandering and you know what we've got in the realm of literature is like these very aspirational stories of people who've almost paid their mortgage off like i've never even considered getting a mortgage i i feel like i get to talk to people all the time with with very short amounts of time and and they don't know like why they're not having fun or something and it's like dude you, it's like it's not fun it's like it's not fun for a long time yeah. like it takes a long time to feel okay and you and i, I mean you need to endure it you yeah. just do and then it gets fun but it, it takes time it does and like yeah i it's horrible i mean the beginning <laughs> is i mean some people i guess have experiences where they get sober and it's good right away mm. i didn't have that experience no. but i was miserable out there for many 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 years so even being miserable in early recovery, it wasn't as miserable. Right. Yeah. It was like, uh, I, I say this a lot, but like I didn't have hope for a really long time, but I had curiosity. So I, I was miserable, but I was like, yeah, but like she's she's getting better. Like, And, and that's not a unique story. That's loads of people. But like, yeah, like I, I, I wrote about this uh, a little bit just in my in my writing practice about how like I really identified as like the sad girl, like all I ever thought I was going to be is sad. So like getting sober, I was like, oh great, I'm sad. But I'm like, but I'm supposed to be feeling something different right now. Like I'm supposed to be happy. Right. And I, 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 I want to say like, it was about three and a half years, uh, not not to discourage anyone that's like nearly sober, but like it was three and a half years that I like uh, started to feel like any like lasting happiness. And it was at five years that I started to feel like a human. They, do they say five years you get your marbles? Get your marbles they say back. that in, in England too? I don't know if they do. Like I, I say it because obviously I got sober in America. But so I'm trying to, yeah, I, th I think they do. I heard an old timer say it in London. And yeah, one, one of my friends from America sent me some marbles for my five. So I was like, oh. You know, it's funny. The lady at my meeting, and I'm very excited for the book. Last time Lowe's came on, she like said 10 things about the book. And then like the next day she's like, you need to take those things out. <laughs> She's like, you need so I'm a little I don't want to go any further about the book. I think it's gonna be fantastic. I cannot wait to read it. I cannot oh. wait to have you on the show to talk about exactly what's oh in my it. God, yes. It'll be an incredible book promoting episode. Fuck but yeah. now I'm just excited for the process. I, I'm typing over here because I'm I'm trying to remember how much time our guest had. Oh shit. I yeah. feel like I feel like she doesn't have much time. I think she has a year and a half, but she might have less. Do you remember? I think it was 18 months. That's a year and a half. Yep. <laughs> I could have also just made that up. No, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And um and she's similar age and she's mm -hmm. Dr. Drew's daughter. Mm -hmm. Which is uh very 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 interesting. That is so okay, I foreigner here. I uh, I came across Dr. Drew for the first time I in when I got sober and I had no idea who this man was and one of my friends that I got sober with was like do you want to watch Celebrity Rehab with me? And I was like, 
no like that sounds awful like why would I want to watch that and then it became a, a ritual for us like we we watched it multiple times like all the way through uh, many seasons and then uh, in COVID we would like you know do you remember when we would like uh, screen share TV shows on Zoom like when we couldn't be together like that's that's what we did We'd, so, I never did anything like that but keep going please <laughs> I was a loser that doesn't, I doesn't, I'm not saying that you're a loser when you say you did that I'm just saying that's not something I oh, ever did oh man yeah I was I was really big on uh, watch, uh, co-watching like uh, with, with people so you're watching the same thing like at a distance and I think it's with... because I had COVID with my family of four so there was there's only co-watching with, with them with your you actual uh, a lot of children. a lot of children show watching Watching a lot of uh, Gabby's house and fucking all these dumb My Little Pony and like oh. I'm I'm hooked on these children's shows. But I I did not have high expectations for Paulina Pinsky mm-hmm. and I Paulina's probably listening. Paulina, I didn't have high expectations <laughs> and then you fucking were incredible. So let's go ahead and play Paulina. I'm in the very, very swanky apartment of the Pinskys, and I'm with the young Paulina Pinsky, who wrote a book with her dad called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, about relationships and all that, and intimacy, it's attachment. It's a teen guide to consent, primarily. So let should we talk about that first, or do we want to talk about addiction? Anything. I'll talk about anything. Let's hear about the teen guide to consent, because yeah. I don't know about that. Like, I know that I, know that I hear about... I hear both sides. What I hear is like, you need consent, Mm -hmm. but asking for consent isn't sexy. Yeah, people hate that. They they really think it's unsexy. I'm the opposite. I'm hyperverbal, but this isn't about me. It's about everybody else. So when is consent sexy? Give me an example. Well, so the central tenant of our book is TCB, Trust, Compassion, and Boundaries. So at the foundation of consent are those three things. However, the, the way our book is structured is that if you trust yourself, have compassion for yourself and know your own boundaries, then you can trust someone else, offer them compassion and respect their boundaries. And so really, our book is really actually quite special in that we have you kind of explore your own identity before we even get to relationships. And we talk about consent in non-sexual context, like crushes is like chapter 13. And so kind of our idea was, you know, if we don't even know what consent is outside of the bedroom, how are people going to know when it when the time comes, right? Sex complicates things. And so what I love about our book is that it's really about knowing yourself and trusting yourself and having compassion for yourself so that you can offer that to somebody else. And also TCB is like... Um, Taking care of business. Yes, I'm a big Elvis fan. I've been praying to Elvis since I was eight. I, I heard that. Yeah, so... What about Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. He was straight up racist. That sucker was simple and yeah. plain. Fuck him and John Wayne. What do you think I, about Public Enemies take on Elvis? I don't know. I, That's the what I just quoted. Oh, is that? That's from Fight the Power. Oh, I... You need to listen to Fight the Power. Okay, I will. But... I love Elvis too. And I love yeah. public enemy. I, you know, I think, um, I think it was like Hemingway that said like intelligence is holding two truths at the same time. Mm. And so like, I can, I can acknowledge that he was like a racist drug addict and also like important to me, you know, and, and obviously like the culture and many people. I would love to know how racist Elvis was or wasn't because in that yeah. movie, in the Elvis biopic, he yeah. certainly doesn't seem racist. I, I think, I, I don't know how, like, fam- like, I know he grew up in, like, 
black churches and I like growing up I always saw representations of like he would give random black ladies t-birds on the street you know and I don't know how much of that was like meaning the car he yeah would like cars he would give away. cars away and so I don't I, I think the sort of racism the racism lies in the fact that like obviously he was co-opting black culture and that like we we credit Elvis with rock and roll, but really like he was just kind of copying, like literally copy paste. No, but he was like the first white rapper. <laughs> you know, he yeah, was yeah. like the first like white rehab rapper guy. Yeah. And, but he did it right. He yeah. did it like like the best, like Eminem, like Elvis fucking yeah. took the greatest rock and roll style and made it better. Yeah. You know, and maybe not better than everybody, but yeah. I mean- Elvis is right there. I'm I'm yeah. an Elvis fan. I'm glad. I'm I, also a Chuck Berry fan. I'm yeah. also a Little Richard fan. And I would imagine, although Little Richard did talk a lot of shit about Elvis. Really? But I'm sure they were jealous. But there's more important stuff to talk about. <laughs> we I, could talk about Elvis this whole hour and forget about addiction. I want to talk about what it's like to grow up Dr. Drew's daughter. Yeah. And and like, because the second you started talking about consent yeah. in your book, which sounds awesome, I was like, that was not the first question to ask. The first question <laughs> to ask is, when your father is this incredibly profound, lauded internist, doctor, mm-hmm. uh, television personality, the person that tells the world what to do in relationships, yeah. what to do with addiction, what to do with mental health, mm. how does it affect you? Before I forget, uh, when we were writing the book, I was in the height of my own addiction and I called it the consent book I didn't consent to. Wow. Um, the way the book was pitched to me, I was three months out of my MFA program. I got my um, my master's of fine arts in creative writing, nonfiction. At Columbia. At Columbia, correct. Serious business. And the reason I pursued that path is because of experiences in relation to my dad's, you know, his whole sphere. Basically, I wanted to be able to tell my story in a way that had authority and was effective. And I had had experience of people taking my words and misconstruing them. And so I pursued the MFA because I wanted to be in command of what I was doing and know what I was doing and be the best writer that I could be. And so in 2019, I'm out of my MFA program. My mom's like, hey, because I lived here. She was like, hey, what do you do on August 17th? And I was like, oh, are you guys in town? She's like, I need you to sell T-shirts at dad's podcast event. I was like, cool, 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 cool. Okay, okay. She shows up, like it's at Caroline's on Broadway. She shows up with a hockey bag full of t-shirts. Like they say, like Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew after dark. And then one's like, you shouldn't prolapse your anus, Dr. Drew. So I'm like standing in front of this table of t-shirts. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like about to start adjunct professoring. I'm like selling t-shirts at my dad's podcasting event. And my dad comes up and he's like, so we sold the consent book today. And I was like, consent book? And he's like, yeah, the consent book we talked about. I was like, when did we talk about a consent book? And so I was really in resentment about it because I felt like he was just like putting it on me because they didn't do research to see if I had an agent. So I paid two agents, all these like. So meaning like he sold, he got. He sold the concept got, without me even knowing about it. But that's beautiful. It's such a gift and it's such an asshole thing that I was like, oh, wow, this is not a literary book. This is not what I wanted, daddy. You know, it's like. I like that voice. <laughs> thank you. It's It's my privileged white girl voice. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and so I couldn't see what a gift it was. And so over the course of writing this book, I was just smoking weed nonstop. And so I was very much in resentment of like, I didn't consent to this. This isn't what I want to be doing. Was that this. the whole book while you were writing yeah. it? Yeah. That's so funny. And we wrote it in six months. And so it was a speed write. I was in complete resentment about it. 
And it ended up leading to me getting sober. So so that's that story. But when when's yeah. the first time you got high? Late. Um, I didn't start drinking until I was 18 because my dad. So this is so my, growing up in my mind, my dad was way more like the rehab guy because he worked at the rehab and he'd sit at the dinner table and be like, when you start using your brain stops developing and just kind of like spouting statistics. But that's the one that really rings out in my head. And, you know, I'm a triplet. And so there's three of us. And, you know, our education was always sort of like we didn't like my dad's like culturally Jewish, but my mom like tried to like get me to go to church with like my Christian classmate. But like there wasn't religion in the house, but like our religion was education. It was like, you're going to do your education. You're going to go to college. Like that's what you're going to do. And so there was a lot of pressure to perform. I was also a competitive figure skater also. Wow. And so not only was there a lot of pressure to perform academically, but also I was in this cult-like, hyper-competitive, perfectionistic sport. And so there wasn't any room or time to do drugs or alcohol. Um, and then also I'd go to parties and be like, when you start using, your brain stops developing. And I didn't get invited to parties after that. And, I heard. Yeah. I heard that when you were like in third grade or something, your mother said to you that your father would announce on his radio yeah. show when you lost your virginity. Yeah. I'm sure that oh, had an impact. Fucked me up. I heard that at age 10, your father decided to show you what someone withdrawing on methadone yes, looks like. Yes, I, I was at the rehab. So when you have your first drink, mm -hmm. how much of a rebellion, a sweet rebellion oh, is it? it? Well, I had stopped ice skating. I was like... Uh, my entire teenhood was absorbed by an eating disorder. And so I straddled that line between anorexia and bulimia big time. And when does that start showing its head? 12. So I had started ice skating at five and you I were good. I was good. But then there came a point where I could get better. Right. This is a financial investment. We're doing all our time. So I started going to nutritionist. It's like the early 2000s. So it's like think thin bars and hundred calorie packs right. and you know just like highly processed low fat like i wasn't allowed to eat avocado because it had too much fat in it like things like that and so i really got good at being thin and that was like the first thing that i felt like very good at and so it became control control, control perfectionism you know the thinner i got the more attention i got kind of thing the thinner i got the better i could skate and so that was sort of like my first controlled substance. Not to throw, because that's funny, because I know your, your parents, I yeah. know your mother. But no, I mean, I like to blame my parents for my heroin addiction all the time. Yeah. It's like my favorite thing. But, and I'm 49. Yeah. But that's okay. My mother's dead. It's okay. <laughs> um, how much do you, and I'm in your much, much more, do I blame my parents? you're much more sophisticated and smarter than I am. But how much do you blame your parents? Like no yeah. avocado, 100 calorie things, thin bar, all this shit. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sure they played a big part in that. I I, I say be... I think it's it's Susan's fault. I, if if <laughs> if I if I had an ability to see this, yeah. I'm I'm pointing the finger at your mother. Well, my dad was never home, so like so he it's was, your father's fault too. Well, this because he was the man behind the curtain, yes. you know, and she was like the disciplinarian there. Yes, and it was kind of like this, like, well, what did Lisa? Say? I shouldn't say her name, but what did Lisa say? You know, it was like this outsourcing to the professional. She's the nutritionist yeah, or the coach. The nutritionist, right? And so, and your dad is crazy successful, and he his he would send his patients to her. And so it was like this sort of like false medicalized thing. And so it was also something that I was good at. And like at a certain point, God bless you, mom, I love you. But she wasn't allowed into the nutritionist's office anymore because she wow. would just like 
she would get anxious and be like, it's not working, you know, kind of getting, it was like probably like, I don't know, like whatever the equivalent of like $500 was, you know, like it was probably a, at least a hundred a session. I was going every week, you know? And so it was sort of this like false therapeutic sense of like, I was going, I was getting weighed. I was talking to her. I was getting praised if I lost weight. It wasn't about, you know, it, like I can see sort of like the false therapeutic setting, but it was like, you know, like cardboard boxes pinned onto the wall being like, oh, you can get this at pavilions, but you can't get it at Vons, you know, like just that was like my entire life. Like like, like products and, and what yeah. you're supposed to eat. Yeah. And like she had like um, Xeroxes of what you could buy at what grocery store. So it's an unhealthy relationship with eating and food. Oh, so insane. And of course, because like I'm an alcoholic and an addict, like I took that and just like took it to the extreme that I could like, like you can only have three treat items or one treat meal a week, you know? And I was like, well, what happens if I have no treat meals a week? You know, like how much can I lose? You know? And so it became this way to control. It became this way to excel. It became this way to numb feelings. And then that inevitably slid into bulimia. When did that start? Probably like 16. Um, and it wasn't, it was like enough, like it, it's so interesting to think about like the self-delusion that is in addiction and eating disorders. Like it's kind of that same, like I'm not doing this thing that I'm doing. Like you can kind of convince yourself you're not doing it. See, I'm, I always consider bulimia now just as a, <laughs> as, as a means to enjoy everything I enjoy I, and not put the weight on. Yeah, uh, it, uh, it fucked up my throat. I got like pretty bad esophagitis. When's the first time you purge? I want to say seventh grade. I like had food poisoning and I had lost weight that I couldn't lose. And it was just kind of like this clicking moment. Bing, the light. The yeah, light the light off. went off. Oh yeah. My God. And so, yeah. And so the sort of like first thing that I, my first controlled substance was just starvation, you know? And, and I couldn't feel if I was hungry, right? Like, when, and I, 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 it's something that's really interesting because I'm a writer is I used to be a huge journaler and I used to actually, something I realized recently is like, I would go home and journal about my crushes because before starving myself, like boys were sort of like the first like high I could get. And I'd come home and write about it. It was like this fantasy life of like feeling loved and adored and accepted as I was around eight when my mom was like, when you have sex, your father's going to broadcast it on the radio. And so I had this huge kind of like, I literally would journal like, I have a crush on this person, like list, rotating lists every day. But when I started starving myself, I stopped writing. And so it wasn't until I got to college and started eating disorder recovery that I started writing again, which I so think is the, super interesting. So the, the writing was your vice and then the starvation mm -hmm. was your vice. And if you, you know, if you read about, I don't know much about ascetics and stuff, but I do know the story of Siddhartha and the Buddha and all that stuff yeah. and that they go into the wilderness and stop eating and they kind of trip out. Really? Yeah. It's like a psychedelic development from Yo. starvation. So I'm wondering like if, if it, you had I was getting that, like an anorectic high. Yeah. Well, something. Probably. I mean, I've never, I've never postulated this kind of thing before, but it, I can imagine there's some kind of psychedelic effect of, yeah. of depriving yourself and i mean ascetics are these crazy people that go into the woods and yeah. don't eat and then you know eat a grain of rice or yeah. whatever and well just the feeling of control right when you feel so powerless i was going i mean at the time i was at this very competitive k-12 through school that my dad also went to you know like and i and a lot of expectation a lot of expectation i decided in the third grade i wasn't smart 
And so it was like, how do I excel if I'm not smart, right? What is my thing? And it was figure skating. It was figure skating. It was being pretty. It was being thin. You know, it was like, how can I make myself as blank and of a canvas as pretty as possible? And like, unfortunately, in our culture, we equate prettiness with thinness. And like, the thinner you are, the prettier you're perceived. So you went full on. Oh, I mean, I was like 120 pounds, you know, and I'm like, probably double that now. Right. And, and, but it's like, I got celebrated for it. You know, and so and yeah. how good a skater were you? I was working on my triples before I quit. So I was like, I, I in the first grade, this girl in my class who was also an ice skater ran around and told everyone I wasn't going to the Olympics and she was. And someone came up and was like, hey, she said you're not going to the Olympics and she is. And I just was like, I'm not going to the Olympics. I'm going to college. You know, and it's like I was thinking about that because it's a story I tell over and over again. And I'm like, at seven, I did not understand what college meant. You know, like who told me that first, right? Like, like college was the goal. And I inevitably got into college. And around that time, I started drinking. Now, the reason you knew you wanted to go to college was because, like you said, education was the religion in your home. Yeah. So when do you quit skating? It was like 17 or 18. And it was kind of, it just... It was this weird balancing act because my sophomore year of high school, I was skating before school, doing dance during school and cheer after school, all on like less than 1200 calories. I was drinking like six Diet Cokes a day. Madness. Like, yeah, I was like basically dissociate. Like uh, at lunch, I would be like, you know, when you stare and it feels really good and you don't want to blink and everybody's like, you say that every day, Paulina, you know? I was like literally dissociating actively all the time. And at that point I wanted to go to Columbia cause they had an ice skating team. I don't think I heard dissociating until like we started making the show. Really? Like it was not a thing, even though I was probably dissociating yeah. all the time, I didn't hear it. Your dad probably talks about dissociating on a daily basis. He didn't notice though. No, well, he was working. My dad- I Does he feel guilt? I think for a long time, I wanted to make him feel guilt. I'm sure it was- Good like, for you. That's, yeah. that's the Jewish in you. <laughs> Very good. You know, I, I think I now see that so much of my life is a function of the life that he afforded me, that like he worked this hard so that I could go to college and graduate school and have this education. And, you know, when he was present, he was good and loving. And, you know, I like I no notes, you know, but also like there was a very clear absence and when I was in high school, that's like when celebrity rehab started happening and I could drive my own car and I had a boyfriend. So then I started like secretly having sex. So that was a new vice. So he didn't get to broadcast it. No, no. I, I made sure no one knew. I was very secretive. Like, and that's another thing is like secrets were such a thing with me. I was hiding this eating disorder. I was hiding that I was having sex. I was binging and purging, right? So much of my facade was dependent on my ability to keep close what I was doing. Well, that's the the the, the great tell of the alcoholic addict. Oh, it it's it's so funny now. I wasn't good at keeping secrets. It's really? Weird. I was a horrible addict and I was never good at keeping secrets. I'm jealous of that. I don't know. It, I'm, I'm not good at keeping like secrets of like, I don't know, if I don't like something, I'm not going to be like, I can't pretend anymore. But so much of my secret keeping is like the self-deception. Like I sometimes I can't even see it. And so I have to be very rigorously honest now and like be oversharing to the point, like not so I bad. I think but, I've always been an overshare. Yeah. I've always like needed to tell every, it's weird that, cause I was, I mean, I would tell all my friends that I was using heroin. Yeah. I, I wouldn't tell my parents, yeah. but I didn't think my parents really cared. Yeah. I mean, not that they would have 
they would have cared if I was doing heroin, but yeah. I don't think they were really that interested in what I was doing. So you're living this double life. Yeah. You're having sex. You're binging and purging. Yeah. You're done skating. Mm -hmm. And, and celebrity rehab is on. Does that yeah. change the way you look at drugs, sobriety, all this stuff, addiction? You had asked me what it was like growing up with my dad and like how that impacted me. And the thing that's super interesting about my dad is that it's been so longstanding and it's traversed so many different mediums, right? Like when I was a kid, it was love lines, it was radio. And so like the extent of sort of like the publicity was like going to K-Rock concerts and having rock stars being like, your dad's a good man, you should listen to him, you know? Like, like the equivalent of like- Who's the most famous, the most impactful person that ever said that to you? Like the guy from, I, it's so funny because it's like, I never know any of their names. The guy from System of a Down, Surge. I don't know, I never listened to him. He said it. He said it. Um, I got to meet Jared Little once. Um, I saw him on the street recently. Did you? I should have asked him to come on the show. That's like something. Yeah. That's one of my regrets. I fall asleep at night too. <laughs> it's gonna come back. You never know. He's gonna hear this and be like, "Yeah, yeah." I remember when Doctor Drew was a good man. <laughs> yeah. I told her. Yeah. She knows how it is. Well, yeah. It's just like it was a constant thing, and so like the kind of equivalent of like your dad's corporate luncheon was like me going to concerts, which is like so funny because people like I remember my peers being like, "I can't wait to go to this concert," and I was just over it. I right. Was, I'm like backstage, I'm like, it's boring. Well, you're a showbiz kid. Yeah. You're like a weird piece of showbiz kid. Well, right, so I watched you know, him go from radio to television to podcast, you know, and and it's constantly been changed. So at first when I was younger, it was a little bit more about sex and then it became more about rehab and then it became more of like- Entertainment. Entertainment. So it's like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Kind of, yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, but the, the drug thing was always very clear in our house. And the thing is, is like my high school class was like 90 kids. And so everybody had grown up with him. So it wasn't like no one was like, oh, my God, your dad is Dr. Drew. You know, like no one really unless I went to like a kid from another school. Then they're very excited. Yeah. And then they're like, does your dad talk to you about sex? And I'd be like, no. Does he never did he never talk to you about sex? One time in the fifth grade. Right. But he's not talking to you about consent all day. No. And he's not asking you about drugs no it was clear where it should be it was clear it was already expected and it was also like clear we weren't and we weren't doing that like you know so if you're at parties and you're saying i know i wasn't at parties no but you said One i would go time. to parties and be like <laughs> i'm not doing this yeah. and i was the same way i was which so is judgmental yeah i was exactly the same way. yeah exactly mm -hmm. the same way and and i i got blackout drunk when i was like 15 at a summer camp mm -hmm. and i was like i can't drink you know wow. what I, mean? like, I was like and I would drink here and there. And then when I was like 17, I smoked weed. And I was like, oh my God, I really like this. And then when I got into college, I smoked weed one day and I was like, I need to stay like this. Yeah. And I smoked weed every day from that day till I was 41. Wow. Unless I was in rehab or wow. jail. I smoked every day from 18 to 41 and I was, in love with weed. So yeah. I, I mean, like we've talked I'm about- I'm really excited to talk yes. about this with you, Dan. Yes. So I started drinking at 18. I was at this like older girl's house. We were doing Smirnoff's shots with chasing the cranberry juice. I did like eight shots. I was keeping pace. I did not know what I was doing. And in the middle of the night- You're I at like, school? And I was, eight, I was, it was my December of my senior year. So in I, high school? Yeah. And so- in, in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. Her dad was a LAPD cop and I was drinking in his house, which is, and they always threw the parties, which is very ironic. 
It always is like that. And meanwhile, my dad's like, if you're if you're at a party where adults are serving minors, I will call the police and I will not bail you out. You know, was the cop there? I don't remember. It was like a sleepover at that point. I was kind of I'm picturing like the cop who beat Rodney King in my head. (laughs) That's that's it wasn't that it wasn't that guy. Okay. Um, And so I projectile vomited in the middle of the night. And that was like a ha moment. It's like I could let go of control and it was an easy way to throw up. And so the summer before college is when I really started. It was it was fun, right? It was like I finally got invited to parties. I could let go of that control. I, I was not dieting for the first time in my my life. Was it so liberating it to was, not skate? It was liberating. It was the first summer that I didn't spend three to five hours in an ice rink every day. Well, because obviously you're a very brilliant person. Thank you. And like you had to be this physical restraint athlete beauty mm-hmm. all this shit and then all of a sudden you can let go of that and you can your brain probably starts firing differently oh yeah i mean ice skating is such a perfectionistic sport it's it's literally about like quarters of inches and like yeah it's insane. like i can't even it's, imagine it's so it's debilitating and so to have to know that i was going to college that that goal was achieved Where'd you go? I went to Barnard. Nice. Here. Yeah. So I came here at 18. I knew I wanted to come to New York. That summer, I was given the nickname Barflina because when I would drink, I'd either blackout or vomit. But again, it's like at that age, like that's kind of like the norm. It's like everybody's doing it. And so, you know, throughout college, I was like binge drinking four nights a week. You know, I don't know how I did it like physically because I remember literally saying like, the, one of the first times I drank, I'm like, I threw up like every single time I drank for like the first six months, basically. And I remember saying out loud, like, I think I'm allergic to alcohol. I had the same. I say the same thing. Yeah. And, and I and I and I would always say that I'm not allergic to alcohol like alcoholics are, but I'm actually I get sick. Yeah, that's how Well, I didn't even know about like the, the allergy. Yeah, the yeah. Body, you know, me, like, no, me neither. But yeah. when I hear people talking about it, I was like, I know I was fucking actually. Allergic. Yeah, I think I, I was. would black out and throw up. Yeah. And, and I couldn't handle it. Yeah. And I would be hungover for like three days. Yeah, it was it was like it was torture. It was it was painful to drink. And yet like I had to drink to be invited. I had to drink to let go. I had to drink to socialize. And so freshman year of college is when I addressed my eating disorder. Finally, the binging and purging really accelerated because how I, did you address it? I so I came home for spring break and I was having dinner with my mom. <laughs> I love you, mom. Um, and I was we we're eating a cheese board and she was like, are you really going to eat that? And I went into the bathroom and like threw up. And then that started a day of like binging and purging like eight times. But when she said, are you really going to eat that? Meaning it, like, you shouldn't eat yeah, that. Yeah. And like my entire childhood was like them moving the bread basket away from me. My brother's getting to eat carbonara while I had a salad. You know, like there was like such Fuck, a. Yeah. It was torture. Restrictive. It was so torturous. And yes. so and and. And so when I started, when I got to college, I started getting in touch with that anger that I had been vomiting up. And so when I purged eight times in one day, it kind of like, it was a moment, it was my first moment of clarity where I was like, I can't, like, this isn't good. You know, like this, I'm doing something here. This isn't just something I do occasionally, right? Like this is what I do. This is what I do. And so I went to my school's health services. I got referred out. I found a therapist. I was you with knew. Pretend- yeah. you Dr. Drew is your dad. You're yeah. like, fuck it. I know that I have some fucking illness and yeah. I need to treat it. And you knew exactly what you had to do. I will say that that's the beauty of having my dad is there was never a moment in which I had to like convince them of mental illness or convince them of addiction, right? Like once I finally opened up to my parents about my eating disorder and that I was like, he's like, my dad was like, well, what are you doing for it? You know, it's like, well, I'm in therapy. Okay, good. Keep doing that. You know, like, 
there was no sort of like fighting through the stigma of what I was experiencing. There was just like support through getting help. Right. Which is a privilege. It's it's a beautiful thing. Besides the fact that they're responsible for all of your problems. <laughs> yeah, they, they that, did it all. The fucked up thing is that you're in 12 steps. I'm in 12 yeah. steps and we're not allowed to, we can only blame ourselves. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. the worst part because I want to blame like. Well, so then this takes me nicely into. So I wrote a piece my junior year of college called Get Your Teeth Checked. So it was someone asked me to write an essay. I had started getting into body positivity and like in 2012, that was like a big deal. And I had written like a horrible blog post for this organization called Endangered Bodies, which was like a feminist, like a body positive discussion group in New York City. And so my friend had seen that and she's like, hey, will you write a piece for the Columbia Spectators art magazine? And it was sort of the first time, like I woke up in the middle of the night and it just like spilled out of me. Like it felt like divine. What does get your teeth checked mean? So when I had told my mom I was bulimic, uh, uh, she told me to get my teeth checked. Right. She said, well, get your teeth checked. And so the opening of- Did your mom know anything about bulimia? Uh-uh. Okay. And so the opening of the essay is that scene. And then the whole essay is like my attempt to be like my, the intergenerational body trauma is real. Like my mom and I are working on our relationship. Like we're both healing. And it was very much like beginner writer trying to put a bow on a very painful situation. Meanwhile, my mom and I couldn't be in the same room together because it is no mistake that when you vomit, your mouth is in the same position as screaming. Right. And so all that anger that I had been repressing and vomiting was just spewing out. I just remember being like, I'm angry. I'm going to be angry for the rest of my life. Like, this is who I am now. And Deep fourth step material. Oh, my God. Yeah. But the beauty of, you know, being in treatment for my eating disorder is like, I feel like I had something to stand on recovery wise. Like when I came to 12 step, I kind of slipped in very easily. Cause you had done it. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing to me is that when you're getting treated for your eating disorder, mm -hmm. your alcoholism and drug addiction are kicking in. So, so no one's commenting that. either though. Right? Like, do they know? I would be like, Oh yeah, I'm drinking. And I would have sex with this person. Like I, I was only drinking at that point. So all throughout college, 18 to 22, I was binge drinking. And, and fucking indiscriminately. And yeah, yeah. I I like to say um, in college, people would trip and fall and land inside of me. Like, And it was like this, like I, I wanted intimacy so badly and I knew that if I used sex, it could force intimacy, but then I would feel robbed of an emotional connection that never existed. Right. And so it was just kind of this like, this God-sized hole, really. That you're trying to fill with, 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 with dick yeah. and, and alcohol. Yeah. Yes. And so I wrote that piece. It was really well received in the community, in my college community. I was seen as a writer for the first time. It was the first time that I had an identity that wasn't ice skater. Right. And so- Pretty girl, ice yeah. skater. And what? so six months later, it got picked up by the New York Post. Nice. Um, coincidentally, during Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Beautiful. And so within 24 hours, I was on CNN, Entertainment Tonight, the Extra. Expert. Yeah. And so all of a sudden- Bulimic. It was, Dr. Drew's bulimic yes. daughter. If you Googled me in the year 2014, it was 400 pages of Dr. Drew's bulimic and anorexic daughter. Right. And so it was ironic because this thing that had been my deepest, my true deepest secret was now public. And for so long, I was so afraid of people finding out, of course, like I had sex, right? So it was like kind of the manifestation of my worst fear amplified. So you talked about sex and all that too? Not yet. You didn't talk about no, sex? No, no. You were just awakening sexually. I was. And, and, and in it. And then you're also this public figure about wellness yeah. and you're drinking. Well, Crazy. right. Well, so that was what was so 
like again, it's like that cognitive dissonance is like I was able to snap to like I literally got my hair bleached the day before because like I was a college student with like roots and yellow bleach hair. And I was like, if I'm going on national television, I need to look the part, you know, and emergency bleach job, like literally texting. But it's like, total your double life. Right. It's, and it's the thing that you had done your whole life. Exactly. It's like, this feels totally my me. ice skating training. Snapped off. In. Right. Yeah. And so I was able to be like. Everyone thinks my family is perfect, but we're not. Like, we're put on this pedestal, but we're just like anybody else, you know? And I watched, I looked like a senator's wife. I was saying all the right things. Right. And my dad was, I mean, first of all, my dad was like, you don't have to do this, you right. know? Um, but I, I felt an obligation. I was like, well, I can talk about body positivity. I can talk about eating disorder. I can be the change in the media I wish to see kind of thing. And then you get validated. Oh, and yeah. And you get high. Yeah. And you get to be in your dad's world yeah. and accepted the way your dad is accepted, which is so wow. exciting. That's, I mean, I love that you're saying that because every time I tell this story, there's like the story I tell, right? And I feel like I've never really thought about the high I was getting off oh, of. Oh, yeah. You know, getting picked up by the limo. I at do 6 everything to get high. Yeah. So I, so I, under, I understand. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I became eating disorder girl, which just made me drink more. I, you know, I'd go to the bar at Columbia and people would line up and be like, you are so brave. Right. And I was like, this isn't brave. Like, like I, I was so shut down and inevitably my senior year, I had like the worst depression. But at the same time, you're like, thank you so much. Yeah. And you're, and you're doing all the things that you saw your dad do. Yeah. Or Adam oh, Carolla do, I was or all literally mimicking people. my father. Exactly. I was walking into CNN in the way that I had followed him walking into CNN. And I was waiting and getting my makeup done as I'd watched him to get his makeup done. You know, like. And inside you're, you're broken. I was numb. Like, I just like was so dysregulated. And it's like, I, I think. In the same way that when you're like you're newly sober, you think that you're more functional than you are. Like just because I had stopped vomiting doesn't mean that that had fixed everything. And thankfully, I was in therapy where I was learning how to express myself and connecting my emotions to what I was saying. And like she didn't take my bullshit. She was a great therapist. But it's like all the while I'm like binge drinking my face off. And so my senior year, I was really depressed because I didn't want to be eating disorder, girl. I felt like trapped. I also like... It was like this. You had shown something that you could never not I show. I could never take it back. Right. And everybody's like, I'm getting a corporate job by December. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to get a corporate. I want to go so that after I had done my eating disorder girl tour, I went to Second City for the first time for a college program. And it's called Comedy Studies. And I started doing like sketch and improv. And I was like. In Chicago. Uh, in Chicago. And I was like, I want to be funny. Like, I'm I'm so tired of being eating disorder girl. And I like wrote this like super dark sketch about eating disorders. Like it was still like, I was learning how to make jokes about really dark things. And so my senior year, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to move to Chicago after this. Like I want to get out of New York city. I felt like there was like this scrim between like my experience and my friends. Like they couldn't understand that. Like, it's like, well, you wanted to do that, but it was also hyper traumatizing to like be on the stage performing my eating disorder in a way that was like processed and healed, even though I'd like only had a year and a half in, you know? No, it's a lot. It, it puts yourself in a very like scary place mm -hmm. and you're putting your, and also because your binge drinking is kicking in and because you were forced into a form as a kid. Yeah. And then that form is finally becoming who you really are, yeah. who you want to be. But then you're saying, now take this form. And yeah. you're like, rather than being malleable and easy to change, you're like, now I'm this. And then you get stuck in that. It's, it's a lot. I did not know who I was. And 
I was the performance. How do you think about my armchair psychology? You're doing great. You think it's okay? You've talked to my dad before, haven't you? <laughs> several times. You're doing a great job. Well, thank you. I, no, need, I, I, need, I need to hear that. I because. love an interview where I learn something about what I'm saying because, again, like we tell the, like I heard someone once say, like we, we know what, we learn what is true every time we tell our story. And like as a writer, as a storyteller, I tend to stick to the same narrative and we don't learn anything new if we say the same and thing over no and over. And it's no fun. No. The only interviews that I like, yeah. really, are when I know that it's not what they always say. Yeah. And I know that something changes because it's a real conversation. Yeah. And I, so I'm happy. Like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm learning about myself and I'm obviously learning about you and I'm Please, thankful I'm, for I'm, incre I'm incredibly interesting. <laughs> yeah. I know. You are. Um, so you're fucking... You're, you're out of school. Mm -hmm. You want to be funny. I moved to Chicago. Second city. I get legendary. into the conservatory. Okay. Um, I'm the only one of my friends to get in, which like. What is the, the conservatory? So you have to take a bunch of level classes to be able to apply for the conservatory. So like you have to do like classes A through E and then you get to audition. And so they literally put you on a back line. They want to see you initiate a scene and then react in a scene. So they call your name. They're like, all right, Paulina, initiate. And I would just improvise characters as my mom. She's funny. She is funny. Yeah. I do clairvoyant bits, you yeah, know. Yeah, she's a trip. And so I got into the conservatory. It's a year-long program. There's six levels. You're with your cohort. You have to audition level one and level four. I passed the level four audition, and that's when I found out I got into Columbia. So I was only in Chicago for nine months. But I learned. You were like, fuck comedy. I got into Columbia. Well, yeah. I was like, this isn't rigorous enough. Class once a week isn't intense enough for me. It's also not if forgive me, esteemed in the same way that a master's in fine art from Columbia is esteemed. I mean, yeah. it's like, that's the birth of counterculture literacy. Yeah. You know, it's an incredibly, it's also the place where I stole my first ounce of weed, ironically. Hell yeah. But so take us to Columbia. So I, part of the reason I wanted to come back is because before I left, I started dating this personal trainer who lived at home who was really mean to me in Los Angeles and he no no he was here and so before I left we started dating so I was doing long distance while I was in Chicago so I was back here like every four weeks and so I think there that was my way of just like he was my excuse to come back kind of thing and so I never really let go of New York the door was always the door open. was always open and end of June 2016 is when he introduced me to weed and so we that was the first time you smoked pot mm -hmm. after college. I think it's yeah, so weird that you didn't smoke it's, during college. I think I did one time in high school from a single hitter, but I didn't get high. Okay. Like I have a vague memory of it, but again, it's like, and I repressed it so much because I was so ashamed about it kind of thing, but I'm pretty sure I did once. So we went to Boulder for our one year anniversary. I bought like a $500 PAX. And we got like super strong weed and I proceeded to get like. The Pax was that weird vaporizer thing. Yeah, it was like the first gen, like you shove weed in. Yeah, it, I remember. It I, got cooks one, in it. I, I got one of those. We, I was a waiter at Katz's and there was this other waiter named Lenny yeah. and it, the Pax came out and we were like, we're going to get it. Yeah. I, I didn't love the Pax. Keep no, going. me neither. It would like get too hot and like overbake. It, yeah, it, it like, ruined a lot of It bod. ruined a lot of good. It was a not lot of good stuff. It was not the way it was supposed to be. No. But hold on. How do you go from smoking your first smoking to the packs? That was that was my first like true smoking experience. I don't know why. Probably because he was he. I think because his no, tolerance but you take was a hit. You take a hit of weed. You're like, I. What was the reaction when you when I was seventeen? No, 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 no. When you're the, when you're with the trainer guy yeah. and you smoke weed with him the first time, I was like hallucinogenically high, and he didn't get as high as me, and he was resentful that he wasn't getting as high. Was as he me. like a super stoner guy? He had been, but he had dropped out of school because of his marijuana addiction. 
And it's so funny because I was like, he said that, but I was like, there's kind of like a disbelief about it. And so we went and he was like, don't tell my mom and dad we're smoking kind of thing. And so we like became sort of co-conspirators in that way. And (laughs) yeah, I was like hallucinogenically high. Like I remember watching his head like morph into like Jim Carrey's cat in the hat proportions and just like laughing and him just being upset that he wasn't as high as I was. Well, you had never smoked before. But that was like the core of our thing was like, I'd get higher than he would. He'd be in resentment. And then, That's so fun. And then, yeah, I know it's like so alcoholic. Yeah. And then like later I on, think I've been like that. I think I've gotten angry at girlfriends who got higher than me. Yeah. And I'm trying to smoke more and all yeah. that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so from that point forward, I smoked like every day. And how soon after that do you put down 500 bucks for the packs? Oh, no, I did it before I even smoked. You bought the packs before you ever smoked. Yeah. That's crazy. That's I know. crazy. I know. That's I, like buying podcast gear without having a podcast. I know. But did you use the fuck out of the packs or yeah. did you find that there was a better method for yourself? No, no, no. I used the fuck out of that packs because I could like justify that it was like better for my lungs or something. It's like if you'd mentioned the word packs to me, I wouldn't know what it, it, it was. Yeah. But it triggers when me and Lenny were yeah. like, Dude, we gotta get the packs. Yeah, like yeah. I don't know anything about it, but it's like it's so funny how yeah. that is. Yeah. Okay. So weed becomes Well, so June I do ecstasy for the first time and realize that I've been depressed my whole life. And Was it here you did ecstasy? I did it at Bonnaroo. Okay. <laughs> listening to L C D sound system. Okay. With my best friend. So like, I don't know. I the thing like at the beginning, like set and setting actually paid off. Like I feel like that experience was the only time I did ecstasy because I started getting debilitating migraines and I got a migraine at Bonnaroo. And so kind of that anger that I stopped vomiting up started detonating in my head, basically. And so I started getting debilitating migraines. And I, in August, had a migraine so bad that half my body went numb. I felt a marble go up my neck. I call my dad. He's like, call 911 immediately. You might be having a stroke. I call my mom and I'm like, and she happened to be in town. Thank God. And I was here and I was like, I did ecstasy in June. Am I dying? I'm so sorry. I should never do drugs. You know, she like meets me at the ER. Thank God she was there because they were like, she's just having a panic attack. But I was having migraines. Do they give you benzos? No, they didn't give me anything. So I think it's interesting though, that you 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 find weed, yeah. you fall in love with weed, you have an amazing ecstasy experience yeah. at Bonnaroo. Most dopey guests at that point are on heroin the next yeah. year, you know, but you didn't go down the drug path. No, well, I just state like weed was my drug of choice. Like, and that's what's kind of been hard in recovery is like- You get um, judged for it. Yeah, well, like, it's like sometimes, and I've said this before, my dad's like, you don't mean that. And I, I don't fully mean that, but sometimes it's like, I wish- I, it was meth because then people wouldn't be like, meth is not addictive. Meth is medicine. You know, it's like. It's annoying. It's, it's got, annoying. It's got to be very annoying. And I'll say this, yeah. right? Like I said, I was, I, I identify as a stoner. Yeah. Like I live for stoners. I live for yeah. weed culture. I yeah. live for pot. Yeah. I, I lived for bong hits. Yeah. Like I said, I smoked every day from 18 to 41. Yeah. Then I wound up doing every psychedelic and, and then. So the psychedelics come into my story Where's psych? When do psychedelics come in? Um, what I was gonna say though is that I think it was harder for me to quit weed than heroin. Yeah. So. But- well also because like culturally like the rhetoric used to legalize, I'm not against legalization, I'm against the rhetoric used to legalize because it's not true, right? That red- marijuana isn't addictive, that it is a medicine. And it's like this panacea that's gonna cure everything when- This panacea, panacea, is that the yeah, right way to pronounce it? I think it? so. I think it's panacea. Is it? I think so. Call your dad right now. Beep, beep, beep. No. 
Uh, I want. I got to find out. But anyway, um, psychedelics no. happen in gra- a grad school. But before that, it's like we and and I've made a lot of you know, pseudo enemies. Cause I talk on the show often about how I plan on being an old man who smokes pot on my mm. porch, listening to the Almond brothers. Like mm-hmm. I plan on having bong hits in the future. But when Chris and I started the show, yeah. I said that, you know, that harm reduction, that smoking weed or, or any kind of harm reduction yeah. is, is probably harmful yeah. and dangerous. I agree with that. But after Chris died, I realized that I could be harming people who are doing better. So I, yeah. I backpedaled and yeah. I've decided, what the fuck do I know about your life? I know about I, my life. That's where I exist. But I also think I've seen so, and in my year, I'm, I'm, I realized I'm 20 months, no, no, 18 months over. I've seen four different cases of weed-induced psychosis in the time I've been sober. Where? Uh, pe- people in my life. I got sober because I was trapped in a car with my ex-fiance. When no, he that was story is too good for you to just okay. throw it away. Let's so, get. I want to hear about your psychedelics, okay, and so, I want to hear about your weed arc. Okay, I got you. So I started eating migraines, and they said I couldn't drink anymore. They said I couldn't drink red wine. I'm my mother's daughter. I love red wine. She loves red wine. She loves red wine. There's a fridge of it down there. There's a bottle in there that I got at a winery that we can't open for 20 years. That and could be I li- like your almond brother buying his <laughs> almond. But also it's like I had no idea that I would like I, I knew that sobriety may come for me like in my 60s, you know, but it came early. Um, so I used marijuana as pain management. And, and and it's like it didn't actually cure the pain. It just helped me like reconceptualize the pain. And I spent, I started graduate school at Columbia and I would sit in the classrooms and start seeing auras, like color auras, because I was getting migraines from the light. So I started smoking for pain management. And then I also like, I discovered that when I got stoned with my, my personal trainer boyfriend, I could verbalize things that I never had before. And so it was kind of like this discovery, like it turned off the filter. And so he would get dissociatively stoned and I would get like because you were a dissociator when you weren't stoned mm-hmm. and finally the truth comes out through bud I could connect to myself I love that and that but that's why people talk about weed as this medicine I know because it did it for you it did it got you in touch with it yourself did. but then like it's interesting though because then like I would try to write stoned and I submitted this piece and my my mentor in grad school was like what is this right like, and so I I learned like I it's hard because it's like in the beginning, we did so much for me, but also it ended up working against me. And I, I ended up outsourcing my creativity to it. And then when without it, I felt like I couldn't be creative. Yeah. And then I when then I get high and not be able to be creative. And so it was like this like Sisyphusian cycle where it was like, if I don't smoke, then I won't write. But if I smoke, I can't write. And so I have to smoke. And then I'd be like in the bathtub at 11 a.m. stoned. But you, you know? think it's a lubricant, but then it's it's totally stopped everything from happening. Well, it's it's interesting because I think sometimes think people believe that marijuana can get you in touch with your higher power. And maybe in a certain sense, it does feel euphoric and godlike. But I, I have found that that's like sort of like a false connection that like in sobriety, I'm so much more connected to my creative intelligence. That is my higher power, is my ability to connect to my creative intelligence. And like, if I'm outsourcing that, I'm disrupting my own my own connection and my own power. No, it's, it's interesting because I know that when I started smoking pot on a daily basis mm-hmm. and I fell in love with it for the for this creative lubricant, mm-hmm. for this oneness feeling, which I really felt mm-hmm. like and I know that it gave me so many gifts. And I, I believe that weed 
does connect a lot of people to a higher power. Mm -hmm. And like, and I'm not against, like, I love reggae music and and the idea of meditation through weed. And I wish I could have done it. Yeah. But when I was 20, me and my roommate would smoke weed every morning. Yeah. And my roommate would say, ruin your day and hold up a bong. Yeah. Because as soon as we took a bong hit, you're done. We're done. And it's like, maybe mm-hmm. it does all these good things, but ultimately for people like us, it prevents. It, well, I think that there's a turning point. How many people do you know, or how many people do I know that want to do X, Y, and Z, but they're still smoking. So you know, they can't do anything besides smoke. A million. I know two people who I can say can actually use it in a way that is not addictive. That is like, they can smoke once or twice a week and put it down. Like a chronic user is anyone who smokes more than twice a week. Which is I, every, no one. I mean, no it's like, one. no one smokes twice I, a week. Right? I, I, I Prove need to, me wrong, dopey nation. Yeah. Prove me fucking wrong. Yeah. But I believe there are people out here in the world watching us, listening to us, who have a relationship with marijuana that's successful for them. God bless them. God bless them. Exactly. It has nothing to do with me. But I think that because like it's usually people who don't have addiction in their genes that are like, I was able to put it down. So it's ridiculous that you can't, you know, and it's like the THC content in marijuana now in 1993, it was like 3.4. Now it starts at 12. We're not talking about, you know, weed as it was like this is a different beast. This is genetically modified highly addictive, psychosis-inducing shit. You no, know? I mean, I was on a mission to find higher THC content. Yeah. And I loved it. I yeah. loved, you know, and I, I came up in the 90s. Yeah. And, and, you know, Kind Bud, the development. I mean, you're too young for this, but there was a development of Kind Bud yeah. and the dank and then all the fucking concentrates and, and you know, starting with the old afghani hash and turning into keef like oh the first God. time you stumble onto keef it's oh, like game over it's just such an exciting time yeah oh it's yeah. just crystals it's amazing it's it, just crystals, it's just crystals? Yeah. that sounds so magical and then shattered and and yeah. wax mm-hmm. and all this and then now yeah, it's, it's a whole other thing well yeah i think i was able to, it it was sustainable quote unquote until psychedelics entered the picture until I what was, were you doing psychedelically um psychedelic wise i should say so after graduate school, I started dating somebody who had just moved here from New Orleans and he considered himself a psychonaut. Oh. And so I was doing fucking research chemicals. Okay. Um, so he would have stuff mailed in from the Netherlands and I- Give us some some compound- uh, 1PLSD, 4ACOMET. You're talking to your people. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is like I never did my own research. I was kind of outsourcing my trust of like, if he's doing this, right? I can do it. I can do That's it. That's because you're a drug addict. I know. God bless you. I know. You say you're just a weed head, but you have a nice, oh, yeah. rich, disassociative I'm, history. I'm so lucky that I didn't date someone who was doing meth or heroin. Right. Because I, I mean, codependency is a huge part of my thing. And like, because he was doing it, I was doing it. Right. And like, because I was dating and then and then inevitably we he moved in the week before the pandemic started and that's when dabs were introduced and that's when my addiction just like totally accelerated where is your dad's voice in your head during all this i think because i was in so much resentment about the consent book so i started dating this guy around the time that the consent book was happening and so I think I was trying to prove him wrong resent the consent that should resent be like the, the, fa- the next book that's going to be on my tote bags. Right. Um, I, uh, it was this crazy cognitive dissonance of just like, I start dating this guy. So I, I writing, love how recent all this stuff yeah. is. Because it's like everyone else is like 20 years no, no, ago. No. You know, I'm with you. Yeah. No, and it's, it's, I, it's interesting because I, 
it feels more distant than it is. But that's just the nature of time. Is it? I, I mean, think so. It's also the nature of recovery. Yeah. Like there's a huge block of clear thinking between you and this period. I remember when I first got sober, like day two, I remember being like, oh my God, if there's an emergency, I can drive, you know, because so much of my life was accommodating stoned time, you know, like I was in my apartment in New York City and at a certain point you couldn't reach me past 4 p.m. You know, it's like I was dissociatively high on the couch. Um, Sounds so good. I'm sorry. (laughs) That shouldn't sound good to me, but it does. (laughs) Uh, I think just on the couch might be the the couch. Yeah, just the couch part. All of it. All of it. Um, We went on three dates. He took me out for a steak dinner and a movie. It freaked me out. It was like the first person who was actually trying to date me. I was used to New York scene where it was like, take Adderall and make out and never talk again. You know, like everybody is emotionally unavailable. Everybody's trying to find something better. I desperately wanted to feel connected. This guy came in. He was new to the city. So he, you know, he didn't didn't know. know He didn't know the New York City dating culture. And so I tried to ghost him, but he didn't get it. And meanwhile, I'm like hooking up with this other guy. Um, who did not want me, so I wanted him more. Um, always incredibly attractive. We were having great sex, too. Like, I was pegging him all summer. No way. Yeah, it was great. We'd smoke weed and I'd peg him. Wow. Yeah. And um, that was- That's that a was, first for the show. Really? So thank you. Thank you. I think you've just brought pegging into the Dopey Nation. So he- They will be grateful for that. You're I so welcome, you. Dopey Nation. Butt plugs are a big thing in Dopey Nation, but pegging has it. never been- Yeah, so that guy, I had come back, so I had- after graduate school. Do you lube up the th- How does yeah. pegging work? Can you walk us through stone okay, pegging? So, thankfully, he was a veteran of being pegged. And I thought he was going to be like a, a, Vietnam, a Vietnam he veteran. He was a Vietnam veteran, I found, who loved being pegged. Yes. No, he wasn't. Um, the World War II veteran. The way I met him was through Tinder, and he messaged me. He's like, this seems like a crazy message, but would you want to come up to the Vermont with me with my childhood friends for the 4th of July? And I was like, can we meet first? Just so I that see that you won't like, kill me. That's a smart answer. And he ended up being really hot and I went and then... Um, How does pegging get introduced? So I, I take a bus up to the Vermont. I'm like, oh man, like this is going to be the love of my life. You Where know? in Vermont did you go? Where did remember. he go to school? You don't remember? I don't remember. Please keep going. I don't want um, to derail this And at all. so I get up there. He takes me into a field. He's like, I'm questioning my sexuality. I'm like, cool, 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 cool. He proceeds to ignore me the whole weekend unless we're dry humping. Then I come back to New York. I'm like, hey, man, it wasn't cool that you ignored me all weekend. He's like, thank you so much for your honesty. And then we proceed to like peg all summer. And he had everything. When's the first pegging? What? How does it happen? You don't dry hump and then all of a sudden. Do you, I, uh, it happened. It strap on? It happened. It was it? a strap on. He had like a whole. Pegging kit. No, he literally had like a clear like pull out like one of those like container store like shelves of dildos. When does he reveal it? How does it come up? Very quickly. Like, it was like, as soon as Was this your first... I've never encountered anything. I really... Like, I I think because Broad City had that episode where Alana pegged... Or Abby pegged a guy. I was like, I want to pick a guy. I'm a feminist, you know? Amazing. Yeah. And so, he was like, yeah, I'm really into... Like, as soon as he apologized, it turned into sexting. Like, our entire dynamic was sexting. And was like his first one. Will you fuck me up the ass? Kind of probably. Yeah. Like it was really, it was very like we had crazy sexual chemistry and, and I was like, of course I've been waiting for someone to ask me this. Um, and so I think I literally took the bus to like prospect Lefford gardens, like from Greenpoint, like I committed to the bit and he opened the store and there's like dildos of multiple sizes. He has the strap on. 
generally, do you want to like a tutorial of the pegging? I think I want as much as you're okay, willing to so tell. Okay, so with pegging, you want to start with fingers. Butt stuff, lube, 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 lube. Like it's not self-lubricating. If you think you're using too much lube, that's enough, enough lube. Generally, you start with fingers, smallest to biggest, and then you ease your way into, you know. Object. Object. And Were the dildos lifelike? No, but they were huge. Right. They were huge. At a certain point, he like crafted like a table with like it was it was so anyways this guy's trying to date me while i'm having like this level kind of sex amazing um how many people are you friends with that have experienced this i don't never heard anyone tell me this story yeah no not that many i really got my drug addict crazy ass shit in yeah it seems like pre-pandemic even without meth and heroin yeah i mean pegging could trump that i was doing adderall i was smoking nonstop. i was like I was garbage can to a limit. You know what I mean? Like you were a non-narcotic garbage yes. can. Yes, I think because my think dad is Dr. Pegging. Drew, I knew that meth and needles were bad. You know what I mean? It was like that was where my line drew at a certain point. What about coke? Coke never did it for me. No, I didn't like it. Yeah, I think I you're hit the too. Drip. I think you're too. I'm already like I'm on coke. I'm me too, too. I need something to take yeah, me down. Me, me too. I think we have a yeah, lot in common. Yeah. Yes. So besides the pegging. We besides the pegging. Yes. Yet. Oh um, no, we're just kidding. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> And so then I get the consent book I didn't consent to. This guy comes back. He's like, hey, can we hang out? And I'm like, yeah, but I think we should just be friends. I show up to pizza and I'm just like, this is like the consent book feelings. And he like listened to me, which not, I don't think he really did. He's not, God bless him. He was the disassociative chap from New Orleans. Yes. Okay. And so that night he handed me a tab of LSD. Nice. And so then that began. Blotter, what did it look like? It was gel. It was a little portion of gel in a foil. And it was like not a lot, but it was like enough that if I closed my eyes, I could see patterns. That was the first time you took yeah. acid? Yeah. And then I had just started teaching adjunct at a school here. And that's kind of like when things started accelerating. Like I would be late for class. And like, I, you know, I, at the time I was What like, were you teaching? I was teaching media studies or media culture and a, like a research paper class. So I was teaching three classes and... I was like going out on Tuesday nights and like taking research chemicals, you know, and I was at that point ready to leave New York, but I told myself that this person was helping me fall back in love with New York City. And so we'd like go to like, like um, metal shows in Bushwick and like do psychedelics, you know, and um, I think it's just that like. It was like a really extended girls episode. Yeah, Amazing. Was, I was living out that fantasy. That's awesome. And then the pandemic hit. And he moved in the week before the pandemic started. And then my dad got canceled. And so then it became, you know, like I had a student, like because I was writing that book, like this, the third bedroom in our apartment was my studio, but because he had a full-time job, he took over the studio and then my roommate was in the living room. And so I was pretty much in my bedroom getting dissociatively high, playing 12 hours of Sims, like the Hawaii extension pack for 12 hours a day. Like I had like 400 hours by the end of 2020 and people are sliding into my DMs being like, your dad is a piece of shit. And if you believe anything he says and like watch your inheritance disappear. And I was like, I'm literally in New York city. Like my roommate won't let me leave the house. Like fucking pandemic. I just high the pandemic felt hyper visible, felt hyper afraid, like was doing it right. Right. And like, still I was being criticized. And so it was like this kind of like, also I'm like, whacked out on drugs so like everything is amplified and so you're not pegging the guy anymore no though. no that that's too bad i know that's too bad how's that guy doing summer. how's that guy doing now i think he he said he's living with the love of his life 
Good. And he like, when I came back, when I was like 30 days sober, he's like, hey, do you want to hang out? I was like, yeah, I'm moving, but like you can. And then he was like, I'm sorry. He would like, I remember one time I was riding my bike in the rain in Brooklyn Heights and my, the seat broke off. And so I was like trapped in a thunderstorm and he had a truck and I was like, hey, like, can you help me? Like I'm trapped. And he goes, yeah, I just ordered delivery. So, so like, that's like the. I was sure he was going to say ride the bike with no seat. <laughs> I was I was sure that's where it was going to no, go. No, no. He just like could not show up right, like, right. because he didn't care. All right. I don't want to derail the conversation. Okay, so, you're, you're fucking on the Sims Hawaiian extension yeah. pack disassociating. New York City COVID is yeah. not a good place no, to be. It was horrible. And and my dad, who up until that point, everyone had only ever said he was such a good man. Saying, all of a sudden he's public enemy he's number one. On he Twitter. says COVID is nothing. Yeah. Meanwhile, the city shuts down and everyone hates him. So I'm like, he I don't went know all in. To. He, he went he, he didn't committed need to. to the bit. He didn't need no, to go all in. But he was like hanging out with people who yell and have strong opinions. So he was like, I can do that. Yeah. And my mom's producing. It so she's a- like, Yeah, yell more. Right, right. Yeah. That's so funny. And it so got away from him. It got bit. away from him. Yeah, and yeah. like the Pre- I'm sure it was good for everyone. Like, cause your dad fucking is resilient and he bounced back and he dug yeah, but in. but it was also, and I don't know, I, I've never publicly said this, but my mom was like, I'm worried dad's going to kill himself, you know? Like, and I don't know if that's actually true cause she's hyperbolic and like, but it's like, it, it, like, I remember my dad being, we were in Mexico and he was like, I don't understand. Like, why would you take someone's livelihood away? Like that's that I would kill myself if someone took my livelihood away. Right. Like work has always been his thing. And so it was that's like a success. And, and and also being beloved. Well, that's the thing is, you know, this man that everyone had always told me that I, you know, he's, you'd listen to him. He's a good man. I'm writing this book with him. I'm in resentment about it. It was like my dad had been my moral compass for so long. He had instilled my moral compass and now I'm doing drugs. That feels more right than being in the world, right? And like, I feel hyper visible. So I start pulling back on social media. I, f- I start realizing that people feel like they can lay claim to me because they know my proximity, right? That's when I was like, oh, the beauty of this proximity is I was handed a book deal. The shitty part is that people feel like they can attack me because of my proximity, even though I'm doing everything quote unquote right, you know, and I should have gone home, (laughs) you know, but I'm also glad I didn't because then my addiction really accelerated and I was just like, stoned for the next you should have gone home meaning to los angeles yeah i mean because you were so fucked up i was fucked up i was also like trapped in my room and like we inevitably pulled up a table that i had had in the um basement up to our bedroom and there was only like enough space like i was literally like pressed up against the bed and the table like there was no room for me there like literally metaphorically physically like even though it was my apartment and your brain is just you know not well, around and not around my roommates coming into my room microman like monitoring my dad telling me how i should tell my dad to stop doing what he's doing right and so it was just like i was not present like i think about the so pandemic much. and i i it's hard for me to remember because i was just so like I was disappearing. It's funny because we were all dis- in sobriety. I was disassociating. Yeah. People say that when you get COVID, you go into this weird disassociative yeah. place. I, I mean, there were times I was doing catering for Katz's during COVID yeah. and I got COVID and I didn't remember where we were sending stuff. Like Dude. I, like I, I, it was like total like blank. It's, so, but meanwhile, yeah. you're taking disassociatives I'm smoking and dabs. dabs. Yeah. 
that I really, I only did a dab like one time and I thought it was just so fantastic because it was where heroin and acid met. Yes. It was like such an exciting place. The first time I did a dab, I felt my soul leave my body and then I projectile vomited onto the couch and the dog and then I shook in a bathtub for three hours. And that was just like the first time. And and meanwhile, like my relationship is failing. I'm with this roommate who's hyper afraid. Everyone's controlling me. I don't have any say. I don't feel like I can lean on my family. My dad is villain number one. You know, it's like all this stuff. And um, so it's like, yeah, I, like I try to access memories of that time, but it's like my brain wasn't registering memories, right? Like I was on so many drugs. And that's why like, you know, I respect everyone's journey. However, I think when we talk about marijuana, it needs to be nuanced because there is that point when it turns. There is this point where your tolerance gets higher. There is this point where, you know, like dabs are like the meth of marijuana, right? Like, how are those legal? How are those legal? You know, it's one of those questions that it's like the people who are in that situation are the only people that can really talk about it. Yeah. You know, and for you. I mean, I've smoked meth with a torch and I've smoked a dab with a torch. Yeah. And I like, I think the torch is an exciting piece of paraphernalia. Yeah, However, I agree with yeah. the way you're talking about it. You know you're in some fucking dark place when you have this fucking blowtorch in your hand to get hot. It's never a good thing when a flame is involved. Well. Unless you're camping. Or or you're fucking not an addict and you get to have fun But somehow. I don't think addicts take dabs. Like that's the thing is like, I don't know anyone who can like casually do dabs. Right, only addicts take only dabs. Only addicts take or, dabs. Or, or, or non-addicts take dabs once. And, and then, then they never, never do it again. Right. They're like, wow, my soul left my body and I projectile vomited and I shook in a bathtub. I'm never doing that again. I know a guy who works at Katz's. He would never say he's an addict. Mm -hmm. He would say he's a stoner. Yeah. And he probably takes dabs every day. Um, but see, that language is hiding something, right? I think it's interesting. I, I appreciate I appreciate your point. And I think uh but he definitely keeps his job. Yeah. His life is definitely manageable. Yeah. You know, he I mean, like, that's the line. That's the line but we're I, talking I about. I wonder how long. Like that's the this thing. This kid mm -hmm. has sustained it for a long time. However, he's probably never gonna do anything besides work on the back counter at Katz's. Yeah. And he does have a shit ton of potential. Yeah. But back to you. Yeah. In Brooklyn, disassociating, yeah. dabbing it up. Fucking yeah. your dad is upside down. Yeah. Your roommate is probably very woke, wants to tell your dad how it is. Yeah. So what when 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 do you leave? Well, she moves out. I'm with my fiance at that well, point. Well, boyfriend. Then I get into a fancy artist residency, March 2021. And it's the first time I'm taking it out of my bubble. We were like a COVID cohort, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna smoke weed at all. I brought where was that uh, New Hampshire where in New Hampshire Peters Peterborough nice so it's like the fanciest most prestigious fucking artist residency I'm like I'll bring seven edibles for seven days I go through them the first week and I'm like okay now I need more someone at the residency gives me some I drive out of state lines to get weed I don't do any writing except from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. because that's the only time I'm not stoned um, right before I had gone what would happen is I would take bong rips and then projectile vomit, um, which is actually called cannabinoid hyperemesis. Oh, your dad got that recently. Did you hear that story where he went and smoked pot with some oh, famous people? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was really, he was like, I know. really shook up I know. by that. I had that. him tell that story on Dopey. Oh, my great. God. He was so shook up by that. 
Um, but you, you, that's how you know he did not give me this gene. But you never hear about that. Say that phrase again. Cannabinoid hyperemesis. So it's chronic vomiting brought on by overblowing your cannabinoid receptors in your brain. And so I was pretty much vomiting every day. And of course, that felt normal to me. You're the only person besides your dad that I ever heard that had that. Well, because everybody thinks it's normal to vomit, right? Or like, I don't know why I'm vomiting. It must be sick. It must be gluten. Like, right? We're never going to look at the, the most obvious thing because there's no discussion. That's what I mean where it's like, because it's medicine, because it's non-addictive, then there must not be any consequences, right? I would overeat, overeat, overeat and smoke weed and I wouldn't, it would do the opposite. Mm. Like weed was the greatest remedy for my stomach mm. that I ever knew. And when I stopped smoking, I didn't know what to do. Well, that's withdrawal, right? I'm just saying like, I, I never heard of that, of, of a vomiting reaction yeah. to it until your dad, dad said that and you've had the same thing. I did, I was vomiting every day and so, I got, I was like, you know, having horrible throat pain. I got a endoscopy. The doctor looked at me and was like, your throat is a mess. Do you think it was just from the dabs? I or was think, it, do you think the bulimia from your, uh, all of every, it. your poor throat? I think, oh my God. Both ways. Both ways. I mean, and then I think because I was in such denial, like it was like, I would forget I vomited because I was high, you know? So it was like, I didn't even clock how often I was vomiting. Right. You couldn't and put it together. And because in some fucked up way, my brain is comfortable with vomiting, you know? Right. You know it. And, and, very, very and also comforting. I'm dissociated and so it allows me to express something. And then the dopamine, like not to inspire any bulimics out here, but like there's a dopamine response. There's a serotonin response when you vomit. And so you can get a high off of vomiting. Right. And so while I'm at McDowell, I get a call and they're like, yeah, you have esophagitis, so you can't drink coffee, eat chocolate, eat spice, no carbonation, no drinking or smoking. And I, in my head, I'm like, but how they do I smoke cigarettes. pot? Yeah, how do I smoke they pot mean then? cigarettes. Can I vape weed? Yeah. So I'm Can like, I take dabs? So I'm still drinking and smoking, but like less. And so I have horrible esophagitis, but it was also like the first time I got taken out of the context of that relationship. And um, when I came back, we went to Hawaii and he proposed. And my body said no, but my mouth said yes. And how did your body say no? I felt panic and dread when he proposed. Because um, you knew it was not the right thing. I knew it was not the right thing. It was such a weird thing because it was like he had been my only person for so long. And he, yeah, he had been the only person for so long. And so I, we got engaged and I remember like logging on to Instagram and people and being like, I'm engaged to the love of my life. And I remember being like, how do I know he's the love of my life? Like, doesn't he have to prove to be the, like so, so many red flags, right? And so we started preparing to get the, like the book on its feet. And meanwhile, I'm thinking about death every day, not in a suicidal way, but in a like, my life is over way. Like, you this know, is it. yeah. And which is like, marriage should be the beginning of your life. And like the fact that I was like, we should be thinking, like, I remember when we got, we went to Los Angeles after Hawaii. And I remember laying by my parents' pool with him being like, we should think about our wills. And he was like, what are you talking about? You're like, and it's I was over. like, yeah, I was like, well, who gets money when we die, you know? And like, I went to one of my childhood friends weddings a week after I got engaged. And of course we took like 50 milligram edibles and drank. And like, I was just like sobbing. And I remember hugging her sobbing and my dad looking at me being like, like kind of looking at me like, what the fuck, you know? And like, it was the first time that I felt caught, you know, it was like, oh, I'm not being normal. Oh, I might be perceptively high and drunk, you know? And so then we started promoting this book. 
And the thing about the writing the book is that we would do it in Google Docs. We'd talk once a week, you know, whatever. But when we were promoting it, we were in person. And so we were having to talk about it. And it was also an opportunity where my dad had to listen to what I had to say. You know, it's like, I think because he has the expert role, it's kind of like I could be easily eclipsed because it was like, well, you know, this is my insight. And now in this context, people were looking for my insight and like, People were asking me about feminism and all these things and my head was shaved. Like I very clearly wanted to be the opposite of the 21 year old senator wife. Like right. I was like, right, girl. I'm like genderqueer, right, like, right. you know, woke. And, and the word woke, like only a Republican uses that word. You know what I mean? But uh, but I that's what I was. Right. It's like I wanted so badly. Well, to I'm be not seen particularly as, Republican. And no, I, I'm I not saying that no, you no, are. No, no, no. I'm just saying I say I say woke I, because- I think woke is like like wanting to be right right rather than having ideals that are actually true and sound it's like i'm saying the thing that i think i should say versus this is how i actually believe and think but i, yeah, I mean but it's like you're in between a million things i was i was and so you should just wear a shirt that says i pegged all last summer it was like <laughs> That would have been like the wokest fucking thing ever. All right. Well, that's going to be on my website next week. Yes. Uh, I pegged last summer. Yes. I pegged last summer. It could be a thing. Um, And so we actually started talking. My mom, like. I don't think there's anything woker than pegging. <laughs> I just, I just think that might be a thing. Yeah. Well, so we're doing all my dad's venues, right? So like Adam Carolla show and Megan Kelly and all this stuff. And that is not my audience. No. And so they're not responding to me well, but I'm, my mom's behind the camera. My dad's next to me. I'm actually spending time with my parents. And so it kind of opened this storm. We're talking about trust, compassion, and boundaries. Are they seeing you high? No. So, so you, I started you slowing set your, down. Your, and your double life though kicks in. Yes. And so I go, I come here, we literally do the live stream and then I go home and get dissociatively high. Yeah. And meanwhile, my ex, I think was getting increasingly psychotic. I think from the point we got engaged onward, he was getting more and more psychotic because he was doing daps before, during and after work, plus ketamine, plus drinking, plus like he was like- He was full on. He was full on. And so I remember calling my dad and being like, asking him about the engagement and just being like, I don't know. And he's, and the one piece of advice he said, he said, there should be no, there's no room for uncertainty in a marriage. And that stuck with me because I did not feel certain. And so fast forward, we promote the book. I have a better relationship with my family. I'm going home more. And I was going to spend Christmas with my ex's family in New Orleans. And so we packed up the car. We started driving. We said, oh, we're going to do sober Christmas. Because I kept like kind of like, like, How did that even come up though? I started having, like, because I was talking to my family more and being taken out of that like drugged in context, I was like starting to worry about my health. And it reminds me of like when you saw yourself throwing up in college. Yes, yes. You're like, and wait I, a second, this isn't just a thing, yes, this is everything. Yes. And so it led to a real true moment of clarity where my brother was in town and we like got drinks with his college friend and he ended up sleeping over and we both got high together. And because we were on that same frequency, I was like, I'm fucking terrified. I think that he's worse with drugs than I thought. I don't think I can marry him. I don't know what to do. I can't stop. Do you think I'm an addict? And he was like, yeah. And it was the first time anyone had said that I had you asked that out. question. Yeah. And so we like, it was like three hours of just me kind of like, like getting into that, that space that I got to in graduate school where I was just like talking, 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 talking. And so, it, and so Jordan suggested, he was like, well, why don't you just pitch sobriety during this car ride? Maybe you guys can start together kind of thing. Nice. And this was Tuesday and we started driving on Friday. Right. 
that's not how it went. We decided to do sober Christmas. We went cold turkey, didn't have any weed. And very uncomfortable. Over the course, and I had stopped, like, I slowed down because the week before that, I had done an overnight babysitting job and, like, had, like, this very prophetic dream about addiction. And so over the course of that three day drive, he became increasingly psychotic and he was an antinatalist. And so he believes people shouldn't have children and that we should walk into extinction hand in hand. And I very, very much want to be a parent. And so it sounds like a real weird guy. Antinatalist. I've never even heard of that. I knew it when we started dating. And yet I was like, I can change his mind. I couldn't. And he tried to change. I I literally went through like waterboarding torture to decide that I do still want to have children. You know, like I recommend it for every parent. Uh, Really question if you want it. I know a guy who can uh, put you through the test. And so Wait, put you through the test of what he would just scre- he would get high and scream at me about like, explain why you want to have children. Like, I can't imagine bringing it like just every day. It like, wasn't for him. The day my book came out, I walked in and he turned to me and he goes, I can't make it ethical. I need you to reconsider because I can't have you can't like just like on and on. And on. I just like started dis- dissociating. I was like, happy pub day to me. And he was like, yeah, happy pub day. Anyways, you can't have, you know, so it was like constant seven months like like FBI level, like, do you want to have kids? And now I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to have kids. But in this car, I was trapped with him and sober for the first time. And I was driving and he was just yelling and yelling and yelling. At a certain point, he was like, if you're going to have a panic attack, you need to pull over. And that's when I realized I had like blacked out on the highway holding the steering wheel, pulled over in McDonald's crying, just like, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. And he's like, no, I can't go without you. I can't go without you. So it was just like this horrible three-day drive where he was just in psychosis, like full blown and increasingly agitated. The only reason I think I'm not dead is because his dog was in the car pretty much. And so how did that save your life? Because he loved his dog more than he loved anything else. Right. Okay. So he went, he needed the dog to live. So you all got to live. I think so. That's like, that's how, whether or not that's true, that's how afraid I felt. What was the McDonald's thing? Cause I heard you talk about it on, uh, yeah. On Duncan Trussell. Yeah. And there was a tampon and vomiting. Okay. And okay. What, was, so, what was the story there? Okay. So you'll get the extended. Yeah. That was also when I was like 90, like very newly sober. That was the first time I talked about That's it. It's a lot. It was like, it felt premature, honestly. But listen, That's the story of my life, but though. But you're accelerated. I mean, it might be premature now. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I'm sorry. Sorry to you. Sorry to them. Sorry to everybody. But we do our best. I yeah. mean, I started the show when I had four months. Yeah. And half of Dopey was just me saying that AA was like a joke, like making fun <laughs> of it. I don't want to hear about my disease yeah. doing push-ups in the parking lot. Yeah. You know. Um, well, so. We do our best. We do. And, and and I'm learning that part of my lot in life is my proximity. And if I can be authentic, like I think as an artist, my task is growing in public, changing in public. And whether or not I get it right or if I stand by whatever I say now in six years, I'd rather have my process documented and show that it is a messy process than be right. It's your choice. It's like if that's the way you – I like to do it like this. I like to like let it all hang out and hope that honest, cool, like – ideas come out that yeah. aren't like premeditated and we get this experience and yeah. and, and that's what's happening and if yeah. you like it then it's good no i do and at this point like clearly even before i was conscious of what i was doing this has been my thing it's like learning how to be authentic in public about things that are painful because i think so often we learn how to hide what is painful and like obviously have a lifetime worth of experience of that and there's something much more magical about being aligned 
and and being honest and authentic than pretending to be okay when I'm not. But there's a weird, and I need to get to the, you get sober, but there's yeah. a weird thing that happens, especially like in, in, and I don't wanna say your world, but your dad's world, yeah. of needing to discuss these things hyper accurately where you almost lose reality mm. in describing it, mm. in defining it, in analyzing it. You get to this weird place where reality is kind of gone and yeah. it's replaced by trying to understand it, yeah. like a simulation yeah. of it. So I think like this is cool because we get both sides of it. Yeah, so, definitely. So this bottom. So I'll give you the extended version because it's actually, it kind of like ties everything nicely together. So I was on the Alabama highway in August, he had fallen off a rebel scooter a block away from our house and shattered his kneecap. And that's a whole other story where I had to like, I've been tripping shrooms all day and had to come back and drive him to the hospital because he wouldn't call an ambulance and also made me put the shrooms back in the house so that the police wouldn't find him if they came. It was just a whole mess. So he couldn't drive for more were than you, Were hour. you taking mushrooms too at that point? Yeah. Okay. And so during this car ride, I would do the long drives because he couldn't physically because of his knee. And so at a certain point he fell asleep. And at that point it was like, I felt like I could breathe because like, just like the, like His. when people are manic and psychotic, it's like they kind of turn borderline in a certain sense that like they, they disrupt your inner sanctum. Like they just kind of like your boundaries don't exist and you are feeling what they're feeling. And when he fell asleep, all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, I can breathe. And in that moment, I'm driving and the Alabama highway is like straight shooting. There's trees on both sides, you know, cruise control. It's middle of the night. All of a sudden, like flashes of my life that I had repressed came back. It was like all of a sudden I was slammed back into my body before I started using like that compartmentalization just dissolved in that moment. And I had like a flashback to being in the second grade, waiting for my mom to pick me up. And you know, the, the shards of, you know, the wooden bench in my leg and my grandfather calling me doll and his leather windbreak, like the smell of his windbreaker, like all of these things that I felt I couldn't remember all of a sudden came flooding back. That's like Proustian or something. Yeah. Right? And for me, whenever I see things scenically or sort of kind of like a movie, I know that I'm living something that I have to write. And for all since graduate school onward, I was like, I'm writing a memoir, right? Ever since I had done that piece, get your teeth checked, you know, people are like, when are you writing your book, right? But because of that experience, I was <clears> like, <throat> I don't want people to misconstrue what I'm saying, right? And I want to do it right. And I don't want to just do it because I have proximity. I want to do it because I'm ready. And that's when I was like, oh, this is the end of the memoir, right? Like this is this is the end of my life as I know it. And this is where things like, and I just started laughing and I was like, oh my God, like this is it. Like life as I know it is over. And so we pull over to a gas station, we're gonna switch spots and I get out of the car and just like a, like a, almost like a chill runs through my body and my teeth start chattering and I start hyperventilating. Cause I was like, I was taken out of that context and my body was just reacting. And I started like before even realizing I walked to a patch of grass and fell to my knees and like had my arms like a straight jacket and was trying to say like, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. But I was saying like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Me and my ex is like, where are you going? What are you doing? And I just like, that's when that was like my true moment of clarity. Like that's when I like kind of did my first step of like, I, I am some, powerless. I am powerless, right? And like, my life is clearly unmanageable. And I fell to my knees. And the only reason I knew it was my bottom is because my favorite memoirist, Mary Carr, has a she has multiple memoirs, but she has one about her alcoholism called Lit. 
And she said she truly surrendered when she fell to her knees. And like I had read it when I was stoned and that's the only thing I remembered, right? right. Whatever we remember is always significant. And here you are on your knees. Here I'm on my knees like rocking, praying to Elvis, right? My grandparents hugging a tree and I'm like, okay, well I have to go to the bathroom. I like kick open the gas station, go into the bathroom. There's a bloody tampon in the toilet. I immediately barf up, chewed up McNuggets, shit my brains out, look in the mirror. I'm like, never forget this. Take a selfie. Cause I'm like, don't ever you still have forget it? this. Yeah, it's bad. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Go back, try to get in the car, start hyperventilating again, get back to the grass, hug the tree, get in the car. And that was the first time that he only like, like he was like calm, like, cause he could finally see what it was doing to me. And we get to New Orleans and then began a night of trying to convince. I was like, you got to go to rehab or we're calling 911. And then him telling me like it was just like so abusive, like the, the entire thing just by the end of it was just so bad. How'd you get out of it? I flew home from New Orleans. Yeah. How long were you there for? 24 hours, not even. Was it, did you, did it had Christmas come yet? No, it was the 21st. So I you got, got to get home for Christmas. I flew home the 21st. I remember like <laughs> I sat on the airplane, closed my eyes, I landed in LA, have never been more grateful to be at LAX. A baby was crying and the guy next to me was like, poor baby. And I was like, thank you so much for showing compassion to right. a baby. He's like, it's okay. I get to the bag. I thought you were hoping he was talking to you <laughs> when he said poor baby. Yeah, maybe he was. Right? And I just like was so just like I was in hyper trauma mode and I get to get baggage claim. Elvis's blue Christmas is playing. I'm like, don't lose a girl. We got to get home. I get home. My mom opens the door and I just like fell to my knees, like dry heave sobbing. Like and I realized like that was the only time that I've ever shown my parents how like I didn't have a choice. Wait, how old are you? Twenty nine. Okay. And I was just like in hyper traumatized, like not blinking, shoulders hunched, like hyperventilating. Like my parents had gotten like a like a sauna blanket and I sat in it for hours. What is a sauna blanket? It's like this like it's almost like a burrito. It's like a it like a heated blanket, but you burrito yourself into it and you just sweat. And so wow. I watched the new season of South Park in the sauna blanket. Wow. And then we went to dinner for my mom's birthday. I had a glass of Chablis the next day. It was my first true day of sobriety, which was my mom's birthday. So my sober birthday is my mom's natal birthday, December 22nd, 2021. And then my first meeting, I did an uh, MA meeting um, virtually. And then my dad suggested the, the big daddy of them all. And so my first in-person meeting was on Christmas Eve. And my parents were going to Adam Carolla's Christmas party and they left without saying bye. And I like stormed out and I like banged onto the, the hood. I was like, you didn't say bye, you know, like free. Like I right. was so traumatized. And so I go to this, you know, 24 hour marathon. I'm there for three hours. I come back and I'm like getting ready for bed. And my dad came and that is the most proud he's ever like he looked at me and he was like going out on Christmas Eve is a really hard thing to do. And the way he like beamed at me was like un unlike any time. Wow. Like ice skating competition, master's degree, second city, like it didn't fucking matter. Well, it's funny because I have, I have so many questions and thoughts about yeah. all this stuff. But one thing that I've, I was listening to you and your dad on, on some podcast yeah. and your dad often interjects about what an addict is going through. And I'm like, you don't fucking know yeah. Dr. Drew, yeah. but he does. Yeah. And the fact that he had that moment of 
pride with you is because of all the work he's done with so many people yeah. and all this pride. And then you are so vulnerable and you're his daughter and you did the right thing and you took accountability and you got going. Yeah. It's very emotional. It was, I think my dad understands me so much more now. Right. And I feel so much more seen. But that's, that's also says something about him as a clinician that yeah. actually cares about working with, with he does. addicts. He does. It's like, I think that really says a lot. Yeah. Now I know that when I got sober, like I had run out of options. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I got sober because I didn't, I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. You know, you had this horrible disassociative situation. Like, why didn't you think I can drink normally and have a normal life? What made you really want recovery? I think because I was so convinced at that point that like marijuana was better than alcohol, that like if I couldn't smoke, why would I drink kind of thing? And I was so desperate. Like I was just so hyper traumatized that right. I don't think I was the reason You're like, I need to feel okay. Yeah. Like I, I moved back home. I came back 30 days later, came to pack up my apartment. Like the first 90 days were fucking brutal, but like I crash landed at home. I went to meetings, you know, I did my thing. And it's just that I was so desperate that it was like, uh, I, it just didn't even feel like an option. But it did take a long time for me to even, it wasn't until I did my fourth step that I was like, oh, I'm an alcoholic, <laughs> you know? Like, I've never had a normal relationship to alcohol, you know, because I could moderate my drinking with weed. Because when I would smoke, I would drink less. Or because I was smoking and not drinking as much, like, I kind of, the way I justified it was like, I'll do the alcohol focus program because I can convince myself I don't have a problem. Whereas with weed, it's like, I'm so repulsed by it. Like there has not been any desire to consume marijuana in any form. Whereas like with drinking, there's something sexy to it. That's interesting. Like when I said my Almond Brothers fantasy, yeah. you were like, oh. <laughs> I would love to drink an Asahi in Japan. You know, I would love to drink that bottle in 20 years. Right. That's been fermenting that right. I, I got from, you know, and it's like, but I also love being sober in a way like I was here last summer teaching and I was, you know, six months sober and like my resting state was so brittle, whereas now and I'm sure it'll continue. I'll be like, wow, last year I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. But I feel such a sense of security in myself and a lightness of being that I never felt when I was drinking and smoking. And so it's like, you know, I've had people be like, well, you can do this forever. And it's like. I like who I am sober more than I ever did before. No, it's really, it really works out. You it know, does. And you hit a stride and when things go bad, there are things you can do mm -hmm. within this thing to feel better that are really effective. Super effective. And it's also like I'm indoctrinated to this fellowship of humanity that's everywhere and it doesn't cost money. And I mean, it, there's suggested donation, but. No, it's free. It's, fr it's, it's free. It's weird though. You know it what I mean? Weird. It's weird because like I'm fucking in. Like yeah. I'm fucking all in. I go. Yeah. To, I go. There's a meeting where I, I live in Suffolk County, uh -huh. and there's a meeting seven days a week at eight in the morning yeah. on the beach. And <sighs> and if I'm not here, You're I'm there. there. Yeah. I'm there. Like if I'm not in Manhattan, I'm there every morning at That's eight. That's beautiful. And I have sponsees, and yeah. I'm like fucking. I, I pray, yeah. I, I do all this shit, and I never wanted this. Me neither. I did not want, and I, and I call it a cult there just to rattle some people. Yeah. And I never wanted it. Yeah. Like, and Dopey, like, Dopey, like, came out of, like, making fun of 12-step. Yeah. And now I, I do it just to, like, just to, to, to live well. Yeah. And the more I do it, the better I live, but it's weird to talk about. It is, and it's... I don't know. I, I was on the train and there was some woman being like, Jesus, you want Jesus. And I was like, 
What I love about this program is that it's for people who want it, not for people who need it, because there would be way more people if everybody who needed it was there. And we're literally not allowed to proselytize about it, right? Well, and we then we'd talk about it. And I think my dad will say that like the the founder, like they wrote the the don't share and that they actually regretted it or whatever. And I think that there's more of a contemporary understanding and there's less secrecy. I think we do a public service when we talk about it in sort of veiled terms, but also like, yeah, it's just like the more you put in, the more you get. And like, and it's not even like, it's a lightness of being. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's just that like, I never had faith before, but I don't even quite understand what faith is. And like, I don't necessarily think that only good things are going to happen to me. They're not. But that, but like, whatever's going to happen is going to be what has to, it. and it has to happen. Right. There's this, right. there's this thing. It's like, we made a lot of bad decisions and our lives burned and people burned. And now as long as we do our best to not make those decisions, whatever is happening is not as bad as what I was doing when I was using. And it's like when they talk about aligning your will with, with, Higher power, power well or whatever god's will and i was like i don't i'm i'm so ambitious i want to do this 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 and yeah. this does god want those things and it doesn't even matter yeah. all that matters is whatever is going to happen is going to happen yeah. and we need to do our best thing and then that thing is meant to happen definitely I'm even if it sucks yeah yeah well, I mean, my dad's always said like dealing with reality on reality's terms, you know, and it's like it's, I wasn't it's so living, annoying though I know. when non-alcoholics say that because they have they don't need it. I they know. don't need to be told. They just know. I like, know. Like my dad said, go with the flow. <laughs> You're like billion, fuck off. What yeah. flow? No, he said that a million times, yeah. and it's like I didn't get it. Yeah, you know, and I couldn't. Yeah, and now I kind of do. I, uh, but my, I still really enjoy blaming my father for my heroin addiction. As you should. Yes, it's one of my Mom, favorites. Mom, you made me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Please, this is a good, this, <laughs> this is a good moment. Uh, I just like I feel bad because I already like I moved through the blame process like with my eating disorder and like I kind of proved that left to my own devices I fuck shit up anyways. You know, like that I have this alcoholic addictive thing anyways, and I'm gonna take anything and everything to an extreme. And that is great when, you know, I have, I run my own business and I, 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 when I teach you, I'm fucking in, like, I want to help get you to that next step. I fucking love editing. I love writing. Like all these things that like I was sort of doing kind of because there was, God was working in my life and like God, I don't think it's a man in the sky. I wasn't really raised within religious dogmatic frameworks, but like the idea of creative intelligence, there was something that told me to go to second city. There was something that told me to apply for the MFA. See, program, I don't even right? think, I don't even think about, uh, like, I don't have that kind of thing. I don't, I, I don't, yeah. I, I like creative intelligence isn't in my but dopey is a manifestation of your creative intelligence right explain creative intelligence so i as someone i went to like a big book study yesterday and someone described here or on yeah Zoom? here um and i Where saw was the it? phrase it was um down the street it was like 29th and 9th and so, in that church yeah that's where DopeyCon is really church of the holy apostle is it odd or is it god baby um so I just saw the phrase creative intelligence and they were talking about like, you know, how people like don't question electricity, but that it exists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic big book stuff. And, you know, I, I think my concept of a higher power is ever shifting, but I really think whatever, like I've been high achieving since I was born and like I was groomed that way, Clearly. I was set up that way. Like everything was set up for me to be that way. It's not, it's not unusual that, that I was able to do that because I was fostered in every way to be so, right? It's more impressive to me when people go back to college when they're not on that path, you know? Like everything was lined up for me to succeed. And because I'm perfectionistic and people pleasing, I did it. But this phrase creative intelligence really clicked for me because 
you know, in the third grade when I wasn't good at math, I decided I was stupid. And the thing is, is that that's because at my school, creative intelligent wasn't like it was something that was fostered, but it wasn't prioritized. And I think as a writer, as a creative, as a performer, as a dancer, as an in sobriety, I came back to ice skating. So now I ice skate again. And, you know, I have this willingness to be a beginner. It's like really helpful for me to kind of fight through my perfectionism and be like, I'm not going to be able to do doubles and that's okay. But I really think of writing as like the act of channeling, like you're taking something ephemeral and using your body as the conduit to conjure an idea. Amazing. Yeah. And so the concept of creative intelligence, I lead people through the artist way, right? And I realize that like my task in this world is to help people get acquainted with their own creative intelligence. That like my higher power is of course something bigger than me, nature, you know, I'm not the penultimate, right? Like I don't, I'm not all knowing, but also I think that all of us have an innate creative intelligence that is our higher power. And so when we attune to that, right, soberly that maybe we can learn how to do it through drugs and alcohol, maybe weed, right? Like that I was able to get glimmers of it, but it's not sustainable that like by outsourcing our creative intelligence, we're, we're limiting our own higher power. And so I think God has been God, right? My creative intelligence has been a guiding force. Is it uncomfortable my, to say God kind on of, camera? Well, it I, is, right? I think it's more it's that weird. I don't you don't want to scare anybody. Off. You yeah, don't want to scare anybody. Cause it does. It's not a loaded term for me, you know? And so just, you it's know. still loaded for me somehow, yeah. and I'm and I'm I'm eight years this week. You know, <gasps> like tomorrow is eight. Congratulations! Years. Thank you. But like, wow. but fucking, it's still loaded. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a atheist Jewish house, and my dad thinks only idiots believe in God. Yeah. You know, but please, I yeah. Like creative intelligence. Well, creative intelligence, and and you know, when I was like seventy days sober, I decided to start a Substack called Newly Sober. And I started documenting because I didn't see anybody talking about marijuana addiction. And no, you fucking. By the way, you. Re- this has been a, a, a zenith. What is it? What's a good word? It's a pinnacle fucking dopey episode. Like Thank you, you brought something that I did not. I had no expectation. I had low expectations. I'm glad. And you brought marijuana addiction to the next level on dopey with wow. pe- with pegging. Which is like... Can the episode title be Pegging and Marijuana Addiction? I think it would be Marijuana Addiction and Pegging. Okay, okay. But listen, you did something very special for me today and the Dopey Nation. you. You fucking brought it. Do you feel like you brought it? I feel like I brought it, but I also feel like you asked the right questions and you pushed me to think about the way I tell my story in a new way. And that is the marker of a brilliant interviewer. I might be the greatest podcaster that I've ever I mean, I, there's I a reason you have 10 million downloads. I know, but I don't like to go crazy about that. <laughs> but you did an amazing job thank today. You. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, I think. And part of yeah. me is very tempted to hire you because like, like, I don't want to brag, but people want me to write a memoir. Like I have yeah. like literary people want, they're dying Let's for my memoir. It. This is literally my job. Like, but I don't, I, I'm like, I, I'll tell you the yeah, truth. Yeah, tell me. I, I don't, I, I'm t- I don't want anyone to help me. Okay. I want, I want to be good enough without help, yeah. but I'm not, I don't know how to do what it. What if I tell you I can help you in a way that makes it feel like you're doing it all by yourself? Well, that sounds good. That's what I do, right? Like I'm not going to write it for you. Well, listen, Dopey, I don't need help. I'm good. I can He's def- never need help in his life. I'm totally, I don't need help. I don't need help. Self will run right, baby. Listen, Paulina Pinsky, you did incredible. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that was Paulina Pinsky. Oh, that was amazing. I feel like me and Paulina would be very good friends. Like, I, I really, uh, this could not have been a more perfect 
guest for today like uh she had me by the heart immediately because as you know i talked about in my episode like my first controlled substance was my eating disorder like uh, that was um and you know her uh world was figure skating mine was uh piano and opera and like a lot of like, lot of commonality so much like i was all like it was almost freaky like uh she went to was it columbia <laughs> i went to yale uh so i think the- you mentioned that <laughs> I know I used to never mention it because like someone said to me once like you go to Yale you can't be an alcoholic like alcoholics like you know blah 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 and I was how like, many times oh in the book did you mention that you went to Yale <laughs> I don't think I mentioned no I do I've, I have written a couple like you know I, I it's like you know when people like uh don't want to say like I went to Harvard uh so they're like oh, I went to school in Boston like I do the same thing um I, like, like, I went to school in New Haven Connecticut in- <laughs> where Yale is <laughs> But I, I will say I, I got a full scholarship. I went there for free. So like, uh, and I'm also foreign. So like, it's, it means more to Americans than it does to like people at home. But that was three humble brags right off the bat. You went there for free on full scholarship and not many people from Scotland can get in. No, they, no, they just don't care. But like, come on. They just, like, uh, you don't think the sheep farmers know about Yale? Sheep farmers don't give off fuck about you you don't think so um well my no they're like, not wearing sweatshirts that say kale ironically <laughs> i could never get one of those i got i said i got my mom and my dad like a yale dad and yale mom shirt and i think i think they understood that it was a good thing but like i had to explain it to them no really like, i mean because we we didn't watch american tv growing up like there's some people that know that like uh gilmore girls right that's how they know like yale like so a lot of my one of my friends that came to visit me she was like i need to go see handsome dan i need to go see this person and i was like what are you talking about She's like, you go there. Do you not know? Anyway, enough about me and you. Uh, back to Paulina. <laughs> she, uh, yeah, I, I, I really feel like it, I, I, I say all of that to say that like I think it's really, really, really important that like high achieving people like sometimes uh, struggle. Struggle, yeah, struggle, and like people try and say that like, well, you've done this, so like you must not, you know, you, it must have not got bad enough for you if you could still, you know, get a degree. And that is, that's something that like, I get really uncomfortable about, like, and it does. But like, no one's ever said that about like, sober actors like Robert Downey Jr. and like, uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Like, no one's ever been like, well, they can't be alcoholics because they were in films. Like, it's, I don't know. Well, I think Robert Downey Jr., because he was such a prolific drug addict, he gets a pass. He gets a pass. You know what I mean? Like he woke up in some strange kid's bed. Yeah, he like <laughs> he was a serious drug addict. Daniel Radcliffe or like he can't be an alcoholic. He was Harry Potter. <laughs> I think it's different. I think that's right. different. And Paulina, I think, you know, I, I had no expectations. Mm. I left there high. Mm. I was so happy. It was I thought it was so good. I I am an avid weed person. I loved weed. And I didn't expect to find a weed addiction story to be compelling. Mm. And yet it was totally compelling. And also she had that research chemical run. Yeah. Which, you know, and and then, but fucking her boyfriend in the ass for a summer is like Dopey Hall of Fame for me. Listen, listen, men move through the world differently once they've been penetrated. And that's all I'm going to say about that, Paulina. Let's chat. I've had a charmed life, I think. <laughs> no, it was great. Like, I, I really, um, that, that was another thing that I really related to um, 
her on was like her relationship, like two relationships, like from like the promiscuity to the someone's trying to date her and she's like disgusted by it. So she goes and like pegs this guy that's like confused about his sexuality, like that whole like, you know, like I am so desperate to be loved. I just want to feel whole uh, whilst engaging with things that are going to like completely uh, botch it up. Yeah, yeah. Not, not to say that pegging is not intimate, uh, because as I said, you move through a lot differently. Like just... I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your word for it, and I, and I feel comfortable with that. <laughs> I really do. I really, I really do. But um, I had another interview with somebody who I think you would have loved. Oh. Also, this comedian you might or might not know her. Her name is Jessa Reed. She, mm, don't think so. she was a famous meth addict who was so interested in staying high that she found out if she would drink her pee, she would stay high. And then she spent months trying to reverse engineer her urine into meth. And she is very woo-woo, and I think you would adore her. Oh, my. But Paulina, I thought, was so similar to you with love, with sex. I figured the pegging would catch you off guard with Ivy League. (laughs) I figured it would it would hit you in a nice place. But you mentioned just now, and I don't remember ever hearing you mention it before, that you uh, did cutting. Yeah. I, so, you know what? I forget, like, cutting was, so this is, this is another thing that, like, I'm quite, um, I mean, you, like, you, you can see my arms here, like, they're covered. Like, I've got quite very, very visible scars, but I forget. And then I, I have this moment where people, I notice people notice and I'm like, oh shit, yeah, like they were there. When did it end and when did it start? Um, It started when, it started about the same time as my eating disorder, which at the same time as Polina was at 12 years old, Um, around the time of womanhood. Like when, you know, your body starts to change and I was just like, fuck, no. So I was like, stop eating so you stay a child like two big feelings i know what's going to make this feeling feel better like i'm going to slice that myself um, how does it work though i mean so like you know how uh Pauline was talking about like uh bulimia has like the, the, it's oh god i don't know the chemicals but like it, it's, it's you serotonin know, so dopamine. endorphin dopamine that's chris it, it tr- <laughs> chris um <laughs> it, it, it triggers your endogenous opioid system I do know that much. So bulimia has that effect and cutting has that same effect. So like I, I was a very, very typical, like uh, I, I was just a razor blade girl. Like, and the, the first time I caught myself, like I, uh, I remember reading about it in a magazine and uh, a girl was like, you know, telling her story of how she quit cutting. And I was like, cutting, that sounds fine. That sounds good. So like, and she talked about razor blades. So I remember like getting my mom's like Venus razor and like trying to like break it up. So, and then I was like, well, this isn't working. Um, and then like going downstairs and like trying to find all the sharps in the house. Like I was 12, I look at 12, I teach 12 year olds now. And I was like, my God, like you're an infant baby child. But like, yeah. And for me like that, it escalated really, really, really quickly. Um, and I, my last cutting relapse, I have caught once in sobriety. It was when I was about a year and a half sober. So, so around 18 months. 18 months. What yes. happened? Um, what happened? I was in an opera that I hated and uh, I was in a f- constant fight with my boyfriend at the time. 
and uh, I felt trapped and I felt upset and I was insecure about my visa situation at the time and uh, I, I, everything just felt like too much. All of the emotional pain came back. Um, and when you are a cutter, it's kind of like, I don't know, I feel like cutting is kind of like drug of choice. Like, so if you are, it, you know, heroin doesn't feel good unless you're a heroin addict, right? I don't know if that's true, but like for- I think it probably does. I, I think it probably would, but like, you know, like if you if you are a heroin addict, like I'm- You I'm, crave that specific feeling. I'm an opioid girl, so like I know that I feel Razor blade girl and opioid yeah, girl. Yeah, like, so I feel differently about it than people that like are enjoying it, but not addicted to it. So because like for, if you're a cutter, like if that's how you experience- Pleasure relief. Or, yeah. or control. Yeah, control. Uh, but there is a pleasurable aspect. Like it's the pleasure of destruction. It's the pleasure of saying I am doing my worst right now. But it's explain also- that some more. Like, mm-hmm. is there pleasure in the pain? Is there pleasure in the control? Is there pleasure in the pain ending? So for me, it's like it's a way to for for me in many ways. Like I can kind of understand it now that like it's a way to displace emotional pain because you're feeling physical pain. And it's also, there's something pleasurable about, for me, it's like a very, very, very high achieving child. And for me, it's like when I got sober, like, you know, you know, you kind of orientate yourself to like, I'm doing good. Like I'm trying to do good right now. And that gets really, really, really fucking exhausting. So it's like, I need to do something that feels bad. Like I need to do, I can't drink, I can't do drugs, but I can cut myself. And it's interesting that drinking displaced the cutting. Or yeah. did you drink and cut at the same time for a while? For a while, sometimes. So, like, I, I say a lot that, like, uh, drinking stopped my eating disorder from killing me. And that, that I really, really, really relate to uh, Polina's story. And uh, she, she started drinking a bit later than I did, but I obviously didn't have <laughs> Dr. Drew as my dad. Um, I had a farmer dad. So, yeah. Farm, but, farmer Drew. Farmer Drew. <laughs> Um, so like, but the, you know, the way that they kind of like traded off and like, I really love how, you know, she got into eating disorder recovery, which gave her like a basis of hope for her substance abuse recovery for, for me, like what I had before drinking and drugs was, was cutting an eating disorder. So then when I realized that like, you know, drinking and drugs, I found like the drugs that worked for me. I was like, okay, I don't have to do that anymore. Like, and I, I think for like my my eating disorder like I loved what Polina said about like when you're purging you're it's it's there's no coincidence that like you make the same mouth that you're when you're screaming yeah that was was deep that hit because like my last bulimia relapse was about two years ago and like that's I don't share about that often because like a lot of people see me as like hope for eating disorder recovery because my eating disorder recovery is is very very strong but like it's it's really helped me to hear Polina say like it's it's rage and i was thinking when i was listening like i was thinking of like that bulimia relapse about two and a half years ago when i was like oh my god like i was livid like i was so angry right because like that was in about year three of my sobriety when and i call that my anger year like that was the year that i was so angry so what do you think you were so angry about that year oh my god just like i'd shifted from self-hatred to everyone hatred like you gave yourself a break Decided to turn on everybody else. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> it's funny. Like, what's what do you think is better? Like, what's better to mm. to hate everyone or to hate yourself? Neither are very good. No. Like, which one would you? Um, I go. I still go back and forth. Yeah. Right. I and I and I when I get really angry at somebody, 
I pray for them. Like I just, yeah. it's built in, like yeah. it's built into my fucking annoying program <laughs> that I have to, but I never pray for myself. I never pray right. that I'm given the love and compassion that I'm freely given. I right. never do that. I totally, totally relate to that. Like, I, I tried that thing where, like, you know, where they say if, you know, if, if you've got, like, a perma resentment and you want to forgive them, like, pray for them every day for 21 days. Every single time I've done that, it's worked. And yeah. I, I think even just, I mean, it depends on the resentment, but it can be done mm-hmm. one time. Yeah. And, like, there, there are there is someone that I've not used that on, Um because it's too delicious a resentment. It's too you delicious. can't let it go. My friend said, uh, he's not to be forgiven in this lifetime. And I'm just like, ooh, that sounds like that sounds like, that a sounds like stealing cheese <laughs> cheese twists. <laughs> oh my god. Um yeah, so I, I, I have that as well. And like it's that's what's so funny about like uh, dating a non-alcoholic because like I've got all of these like things that are quite bewildering unless you walk spiritual path that like when someone really fucks me off I've got to wish that they get everything I want and more you know like to, and it's like it's not even for them like it's for me like so that I can live with the fact that you know I'm livid right now it's not for anybody but you yeah. it's not for anybody <laughs> but me and that's like the ultimate like self self-centeredness i'm gonna pray so you have everything so i can just be okay with the fact that i hate you so much and the fact that i'm praying on it means i'm superior yeah because my program of spirituality makes me but it's it's amazing how fucked we are right it's like i and i feel i feel conflicted because (laughs) because like on one hand it's so fucking irritating to be a person with a spiritual practice Mm. who prays for people Mm -hmm. when i don't like them but on the other hand being all fucked up out there in any which way is much worse. Yeah. So this is like a, a nice channeling of my insanity. Yeah, this is honestly like it is preferable because like I, I had a weird like dark night of the soul about a month ago and I, I was in Berlin and I remember thinking uh, I, I felt very dark. I just all of a sudden and I was like, you know, I just come back from a meeting. I was like, why do I feel dark right now? This never happens. And I forgot how bad it was like and, and that's never that's not happened to me in recovery yet. Like, and I, I just was like, oh, my God. I, I So what does that cannot... look like when you forget? It looks like because um, because I was sad, like I was just sad because I was hormonal. I was hungry. I was a bit out of my element. I was a bit disconnected and I. Uh, I was really, really sad. And I was like, this is so weird. You were sad before, is this the same type of sad? And I was like, okay, this is the exact same type of sad when I was out there, like, you know, blowing up my life. And then the alarm bell went off. Like, it's not the same type of sad. I just have been, you know, I've been at this for like five and a half years now. So I have some distance from the pain. So I can't, necessarily remember how bad it felt and like I tried to access like my memory bank and I was like praying and just like you know I was trying to and and, like there's loads of specific like late like my my late stages of my drinking like with proper mattress on the floor like no sheet on the beds uh see I had mattress on the floor but I needed the sheet (laughs) I need I need the sheet I I I couldn't handle having a sheet because i would have to wash that sheet and the thought i never had to i still i don't feel the need to wash it i just need a sheet i just need it but anyway keep going i'm sorry the coarseness yeah yeah like it's and it's just like 
Uh, and I, I, but I couldn't like connect with it and it, like I couldn't connect with myself. And I'm really happy that like my, kind of my check engine light went off and like I talked to friends about it and I was just like, I can't remember how bad it was. Like, and it just was so weird because I'm so in touch with my emotions and because like I spend a lot of time writing about addiction. I spend a lot of time like living in, you know, my story. I tell my story often, like, and I've never felt disconnected from it like that before and I think like you know it's it's also with like writing a book that whilst it's not a memoir it does engage with parts of my story I need to not make myself anecdotal like I need to not make myself this like package of it was bad and now it is good because like then I'm just gonna stop being a human like and that's you know you you touched on it on uh with Polina that it's like yeah we, we 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 can't like the, the sterility uh, that kind of can creep in and the the disconnect from the real human experience of late stage drinking, drugging and recovery. Like I, I can't make that into a product. Like it's so, so because what happens when I try and like make it into neat, tidy little boxes is I'm in fucking Berlin having the time of my life thinking, holy fuck, I'm sad. And I can't remember how bad it was. So like, why don't I just drink again? Right. Like, and and it's again like the 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 awareness that I was like, this is just my alcoholism talking to me. Like, I'm I'm one of those that like you know, I do believe that like my alcoholism is a mental illness. It speaks to me in my own voice. I need to constantly be aware of that. But it was weird having the awareness and then just like hearing it so loud. And again, it was annoying because like I I I work a very strong program, so I was like, I'm doing everything right. Why is it not working? Because sometimes you just feel like shit and that's okay. Like, it's okay to feel like shit. But I think, like, that's really important. I think, like, that's a real, like, everything can't be good all the time. Yeah. You can't feel good all the time. Because that's that's what, that's just. Because you won't. Even if you do feel good, then you won't feel good enough all the time. Exactly. It's just the nature of being human. It's, it's, yeah. I just, it was so, it's such a beautiful simplicity, right? That my entire drinking career my entire drugging career was just me wanting to feel okay every second i'm alive and it's incredible for me to believe that i will not feel okay every second of my life it's hard yeah it's it's hard for me too and also that normal people feel things too like normal people have a more like this this was genuine news to me that like so I was I was talking about like a problem that I was having and one of my, my sponsor who I thought was gonna give me like, you know, a, a spiritual uh counsel was just like, Loz, you're just growing up. Like you're you're just this is just an adult responsibility. Cause you want everything to be great all be the great. time. I, I it makes sense. <laughs> I, I'm interested and this is might not be the most fun thing to talk oh, about. Yeah, let's go on. That you mentioned that you had a bulimic relapse mm. in in recovery when you're yeah. meant to be like this model of recovery right. and this you know lauded future author of recovery <laughs> recover legendary recovery memeist slash er <laughs> like what what do you, what's happening when you're bulimic mm. in that situation? This is really important for me to talk about, like because I it's something that I wanted to lie about, and like when I have nightmares about relapsing on any of my behaviors the theme of the nightmare is that I I lie about it and that's what feels bad so like when I talk about my eating disorder recovery like I had like before that like it'd been about five years before that since I'd purged and and you had gotten sober and I'd gotten sober in that time and uh and you hadn't done it in your recovery hadn't done it in recovery so yeah exactly right so it it was the first time that I was doing it in my recovery and 
It was, uh, oh my God, I remember it so specifically. It was in, uh, it was July 2021. That's when it was. So it was just over two years ago. And uh, it was so weird because like it was complete powerlessness. Like, and not everyone uses that like model, but for me, like I, I, I got the thought in my head, like you're gonna, you're gonna make yourself sick tonight. And I didn't fight it and I didn't accept it. And I was just like, okay. What did you, what was it supposed to bring you? Um, I feel it. So the, the for for me like the uh, the act of the act of bulimia. No, like the give and take of bulimia is it's it's very controlling because like you know when we feel empty we want to feel full and when we feel full we want to feel empty. For me as well, this is not an advertisement for bulimia. Don't do it. It fucks your teeth up. Like I've spent thousands of pounds on my teeth. I will continue to spend thousands of pounds on my teeth to fix them check your teeth uh and it just like ruins your life basically um but yeah so like for me like it wasn't that it like wanted to I wasn't scared about the weight gain or weight loss at that point like because I knew that bulimia is actually not an effective weight loss method it actually fucks up your metabolism so you gain weight easier like once once you're through with it but for me it was the feeling of controlling how I was feeling I wanted to control my level of fullness and I'd made myself too full and I felt uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable in my skin. My, the circumstances in my life were not great. Like I was uh, in like just not a great situation. Like my uh, my roommate situation wasn't good. I was lonely. Like I started dating again. It wasn't going particularly well. Um, I was feeling insecure. I was feeling vulnerable. I was feeling fucked up um, and I wasn't talking about it. So when I, because I, I I did have really good friends at the time, but I was like, I can't talk to them because like I'm Law's recovery girl. Like I'm the person that people ask about this shit. Right. And that's that was the fatal error. So then I was like, you know, f- fuck it. Like I'm gonna do it. And uh Cause like it took the place of you telling somebody. Yeah. Oh my god, that's such a good way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. And then I, you know, I I, I purged uh, and then did it for a few days after. And I was, you know, I, I tired of it so quickly because I was like, you know, there was that because you know my... you're fucking in addiction yeah. in that moment, and you're like, wait a second, I don't want to be doing this. That's it. And it's like it's that whole addict thing that Polina talked about. That was like, yeah, but I'm totally just not doing the thing that I'm currently doing. Like, you know, when other people do it, that's, that's neat and sort that's, that's addiction. When I do it, like I'm, you know, I'm not actually, you know, and it's, it's, it's so fucky. And it was for me because like, I, I did have some recovery under my belt, like I was sponsoring. And so I knew how it felt to be in addiction. <laughs> like, and I was, it was just pure, when, when I went back to that place, it was just like pure addiction. And then I like had my, like, I'm only going to purge in this toilet, I'm only going to purge if I eat dairy. I'm only going to purge if... How um, long did it last? Oh, ju- just a couple. Of, it was just about a week because I was just like, I can't do this again. Like, bul- bulimia took so much from me. Like, it really, really, really destroyed um, <laughs> my teeth. And <laughs> like, but uh, yeah, like, I, I wouldn't leave the house. Like, uh, still in, in Glasgow and my hometown... I, I still have like in my head, like the mental arithmetic of how far apart certain public toilets are. So like, cause, uh, so I wouldn't go outside of those places. I knew my favorite toilets to purge in. Like if we weren't there, I wouldn't be there. Like I didn't want to talk to people because I was so scared of my breath smelling. So rather than stop purging, I just stopped talking to people. Like, yeah, it, it really, really, really took a lot from me. And yeah, I, I finally like, you know, just got honest about it and like it was one of the most humbling experiences of my life because I was like 
you know, I, w- I was supposed to be the girl that had it all together. And it's it was just like so. But at the same time, like uh, sometimes it's quite nice to be a beginner again. Like I, I'm really glad that I didn't I didn't drink, I didn't drug. But like I it's just kind of accepting that like I don't have to be perfect. I sometimes do think like as far as like the eating disorder recovery, like I'm a lifer. Like it's something that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Like I'm always going to have to have an active recovery for my eating disorder alongside the rest of it but like but isn't that just the way it is with all of it isn't that just like life like i i i find it hard to believe anybody that says they're not a lifer for any of these things because like sure you're everything is going great for x amount of years how many stories do we hear about these people with x amount of time they have it, they're recovered, they're this, they're that, and that's the thing mm-hmm. that makes them slip, you know? It's 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 why, I mean, there's a guy at my meeting who calls him, we, everyone calls him Smiling Joe, and he's been on the show, and he's he was at DopeyCon last year, and you should come to DopeyCon this year, and you, and you might, she might come to DopeyCon this year. We're working on it. It would be tremendous. She can sing opera in the church. It's like a cathedral. Oh, cause the acoustics. I know, it'd be incredible. Anyway, <laughs> fucking smiling Joe. He always says it's yeah, it's a daily reprieve. It's like yeah. it's like the second you think you have it, you don't. It's a daily. It's like that's how I feel about it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like I remember Chris had made the joke, and not your fiance, boyfriend, whatever <laughs> he is, Chris. Once time he said, "Dare I say I'm recovered?" And I said, "Don't say that," mm-hmm. you know. But it's like it's one of those things. And I know that there's a ton of people out there who say they're recovered and mm-hmm. everyone should do it however they fucking want to do it. Yeah. But I'm with you. It's I'm a lifer. Mm-hmm. The second I think I'm not, mm-hmm. I have a problem. The second that I other myself from people working on like a daily program as well, because sometimes I can think like, wow, what a fucking loser. Like, I don't need a daily reprieve. Like, I'm, I'll just, you know. It's weird. I'm fine. It's, 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 <laughs> the whole thing is fucking bizarre. Do you want to do a dopey email or a dopey voicemail? Oh, um, oh, ah, I kind of want to do an email. Email you know I love the written word. Okay. All right, so Lois, Lois wants to do an email because she's a fan of the written word, and this is a long <laughs> one from Australia. You ready? Oh, I Australia like anytime anything comes out of Australia I'm just like good for you Australia uh okay road trip across Australia dopey story uh from Jason okay hey Dave listening to episode 150 and your road trip to Montreal story reminded me of my own crazy road trip across Australia (laughs) this was maybe 10 years ago when my girlfriend and I went to a hippie rave known as a doof about a 10 or 12 hour drive away in another state. The party was fun, taking loads of psychedelics and having a good time. On the last day, our ride back had some problems, so we had to find some other way back to our city. Eventually, we found these two older hippies who seemed nice and they had space. As we were packing up our tent, my friend came over and offered me a drop of liquid acid. I'd only tried it once before, so I was pretty excited. I'm obsessed with liquid again. acid, by the way. <laughs> Are you? I'm, I'm like, all I want to know is, did you take liquid acid in your eyes? It's like my only question that counts, really. And I've never done did it. Did you take no, liquid acid I never in did. your eyes? I never got to. And I, I really think that might be one of those yets on the horizon. That's all I ever wanted was liquid acid in my eyes. Anyway, mm-hmm. please keep going. <laughs> Maybe this guy's done it. Um, you know it's not going to go well for Jason, by the way. But keep going. <laughs> Oh, Jason. Um, The deal with the ride back was that I would drive the second half of the journey. So I figured I had about six or seven hours at least before I had to drive. 
So we get in the car and start the long, boring drive back to our hometown, two crusty old hippies, one young raver girl and me, one equally young middle-class kid. The acid kicked in way stronger than I was expecting and the dusty wheat fields and eucalyptus trees turned into this amazing kaleidoscope of green and brown colors. You're reading this beautifully, Loves. Thank you. (laughs) I hope I'm doing it justice. This is beautifully written. After about one hour, we started to notice some problems with the older hippie guy driving. He was constantly on his phone, going way over the speed limit, veering across the road as he changed the radio stations and just generally not paying attention to the road. We were all really worried since we had lots of drugs in the car with us and we're super paranoid about being pulled over by a hick town country cops in the middle of Australia. Yep. Especially since we were pretty eclectic looking a bunch. Eventually, me and the other hippie guy ordered the driver to pull over and we argued with him about his driving, telling him to be careful, etc. I went into the local shop where we stopped in and bought some cold drinks to diffuse the situation. And the hippie driver went across the road to a cherry farm to buy some cherries. Okay. Um, So we all met back at the car and the guy offered his cooler to store our drinks. Great, I thought. Until he opened the cooler and it was full of raw chicken breast. Oh no. Raw kangaroo meat and other pieces of raw meat that had been sitting in a lukewarm cooler for three days. Oh, yuck. On acid, too. Turns out (laughs) he's a hardcore raw food guy. Only eats raw meat and fruit. Uh, Have you ever heard of that? I've never in my life heard of that. Raw kangaroo meat, three days old in the cooler. Oh, my God. Warm. That. Unpleasant. Oh, you can imagine. What happens next? (laughs) I'm just. It's going to get bad. As we proceeded down the country roads, he ate all the cherries, like four or five pounds of them. Oh, my God. Well, cherries are delightful. Four or five pounds of Listen, them. Listen, I'm just worried about the rock kangaroo <laughs> meat. I'm happy eating the cherries. I'm worried for his intestines. You can imagine what happens next. We had to stop every 15 minutes for him to go to the bathroom, which in this remote part of Australia meant finding a bush big enough for him to hide behind. All this time, his driving was still incredibly bad. And at one point, my girlfriend told me I had to drive since neither he or the other hippie had their license. This was only about three hours after dropping liquid acid. And we had at least another nine hours of driving to go. It took every ounce of concentration for me to keep at the speed limit on the roads and also to work out which exits and roads to take. Once the peak of the trip was over, it was well and truly nighttime and we were about an hour off the state border. I hadn't been paying much attention to the fuel gauge, fuel, fuel gauge? gauge, fuel gauge, and didn't realize that this car wasn't particularly fuel efficient. Uh-oh. No worries, I thought. We can fill up at the border. There's a petrol station there. We rolled into the border town, but it was after 10 p.m. and the gas station was closed. Oh, shit. Well, there's a bigger town about 30 minutes away, so we'll fill up there. This guy's the eternal optimist. This is a great this email, is- by the way. And you're reading it really well. <laughs> yeah. But there was the same problem there. At this point, I realized that the next town was at least an hour's drive and we were close to empty. I then drove about 70 kilometers an hour for about 1.5 hours with the acid trip coming down, completely paranoid that we would be stuck in the middle of absolutely nowhere. By some miracle, we limped into town and we were able to fill up. I was a complete nervous wreck at this point. Understandable. All the others had been sleeping for hours and were oblivious to my last few hours of panic. 
I went into the gas station restaurant to pay it and it was full of truckers and well past their prime sex workers. <laughs> it was like one of those Western scenes where the record stops and everyone looks at you. The woman's face at the counter looked like some kind of grotesque clown with all the makeup she was wearing. I paid for the gas and scurried out of there as quickly as possible. We finally then made it back to our city and I was a complete wreck by this point. I drove back to my place, unloaded our stuff and then the two hippies went on their way. The next day when I was cleaning up, I realized I'd taken their cooler by mistake, <laughs> which was now absolutely full of horrendous smelling rotten meat and cherries. I think I just threw the whole thing in a dumpster behind my house and can still remember the smell yes. to this day. I can remember the smell and I didn't even smell it. Oh my God. Anyway, that's my road trip adventure across Australia on acid. Hope it makes sense. Tools for Chris, G. What? What's his wow. name? What does he say? G. G? G, uh, G, like, oh God, this is uh, J-E-Y, but not G for uh, gorilla, G for jelly bean. So it's J in America. G. <laughs> Fucking Jay. That's a great story. That was wonderful. Thank you, Jay. Oh my God. What storyteller? Now listen, I give out dopey socks to anybody whose email we read or voicemail we play. I try not to ship anything out of the country because it gets so expensive. Oh, but yeah. Jay, you get dopey socks for your acid opus uh, <laughs> with rotten kangaroo meat. Yeah, he put the work in. Like that was that was a beautiful email. The kaleidoscope of eucalyptus trees. I fucking love it. Well done. All right. Lowe's, you've done it. We've done it together. <laughs> I'm so glad you came. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Like, this is, oh man. It's so weird because like, I, I yeah, but, but I, I have that thing that everybody gets like when you've been there somewhere for a certain amount of time or like you're back visiting somewhere where you've previously lived, you're like, you, you get that kind of like time warp feeling yeah, where you're just yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm living here again. So I'm like, oh, let's do this next week. And I'm like, yeah, I'm never going to you? be, you're never going to be back again. I will be back again. I've got tons of friends in America. I'm but crazy. isn't it, isn't it so interesting though, how we've, we've basically only communicated on Instagram mm -hmm. and Zoom mm -hmm. and here we are here like we old are. pals. Absolutely. Like I, it's, it's a, uh, yeah. Cause I met, uh, I met someone in person for the first time. I, she's a sponsee basically. And I, wow. Remote sponsee. Yeah. And she's, you know, we, we have, how to often do you talk to her regularly? Every week. Like when we were, when we were doing the steps, like it was uh, on the phone. Daily. Yeah. On the phone with uh, FaceTimes as well. Yeah. But it was, uh, yeah, we, we do like a daily, uh, I've got like a, a gratitude group chat for, I know that's like really like woo-woo and some people are like, you got that, a what group chat? I, I, a gratitude group chat. Like, I still don't hear the word. Gratitude. Nice. <laughs> See, I've, I, I don't do gratitude uh, lists and I don't have any good reason yeah. for it. Do you it. hate your life? Huh? Do you hate your life? Or you no, just, no. I, I think I did it. Fall forward, I, I think I did it for a while and then I found like I was less grateful as I did it. I was wow. redundant. I just did it to do it. And I know that a gratitude list could solve a lot of issues that I have. I I don't know if gratitude uh, solves any of my problems, but it definitely serves as an antidote uh, for uh, me feeling like a victim of the world. Like for me, the, the way that I do it is like for everything that I'm grateful. Like, so if I'm, if I'm, if I'm grateful for Chris, right. And I write him on my list, that means that I need to be nice to Chris. 
Right. And if I'm grateful for it, gratitude with action. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's just like, it took me so long to realize that like, I actually had to do shit. Um, so it's like, right. But that's important. Yeah. Like, cause everyone's writing these gratitude lists and they don't have gratitude in their attitude. (laughs) I I feel like, I feel like it should be like a graction, a gratitude list. So you take Mm -hmm. action in your gratitude. Do you know, I am such a contrarian that like, I've only started calling it gratitude, like in the past like couple of years, like I used to call it real time joy because like the Good for you. Fuck that. (laughs) Yeah. Real time joy list. That's it. Real time joy list. Like at any time. And like, because I was so miserable. Like I I literally had a list in my phone, like on my notes app called real time joy. And like first, like it was real time joy. Sounds like a record. Real time joy. There you go. We'll make it happen. Uh, yeah, and it's it like made me realize like it's it's I don't know I'm one of those people that like I need fucking evidence like I, I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination but like I, I want a quantifiable thing so like when I started realizing that like my real time joy was accelerating the more that I noticed it and I remember the first time I noticed had a moment of real time joy it was on the Metro North I was coming from Connecticut to New York to go to an audition and I saw a really cool tree and I was like that is the Stone Cold Sober I was like that is the best tree i've ever seen in my life and i wrote down on my list really cool tree right that was the start of all of it of well, me actually listen joy. i think real-time joys i like that <laughs> i had an, a similar experience going home on the long island railroad oh, and yeah. seeing i would go home after waiting tables and i would see at that time of day the sun would cast these shadows mm. of these trees on every house there's like this <gasps> profound tree shadow and i'd be like that's the fucking coolest thing i never wrote it down though because I don't, I, I suffer. I, I didn't have the real time joy, but I have this, the other theory though, right? It's like people like you and I who hate things like gratitude or acceptance or mm. basic woo woo program shit, who's resistant to it until you're neck deep in it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're talking like what you didn't understand. I worry about the people like us in mm. the past who then hear us in the future and don't know what we're talking about and think we're fucking crazy because mm-hmm. we're not. Do you know what I'm saying? I know exactly. It's what rough. Saying. I think it's really because like when we started Dopey, I had four months and all I did was shit on the program and yeah. shit on gratitude and shit on every little bit. And now I'm talking about praying for everybody. I'm talking about a spiritual practice. And I'm mm-hmm. like, there was a thing I heard last year. I'm sure I told you at some point where this guy with 30 years was like, Everything. If I'm working a good program, everything in my life, I either put in a bucket of acceptance or a bucket of gratitude. And I was like, holy shit, that's fucking deep, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> but if I was in that early mode, I'd be like, this guy's fucking full of shit. Right. I don't I, like fuck that. And I, what I really want and I challenge us Ooh. is to try to always be able to put down the program, <laughs> yeah. you know? And like, and just like, I mean, it's like we get so fucking uh indoctrinated right and then i worry about the newcomer who can't feel related to people with time totally here's what i want to say about that because yes. like i feel that deeply and like that's something that like you know you, you'll notice on my instagram like i very rarely talk about programming if i do it's in very veiled terms because like it's for everyone that people who are active people who work or recover in a different way etc etc um it's something that i see it's people who are like asking me questions about this or saying like why do you talk like that like what are you doing um encouraging people to like ask questions and like it's all key to question i do believe that like in recovery circles there are 
cult dynamics. I do not believe the recovery circles themselves are cults, but if we take away people's ability or opportunity to question, then we create a cult dynamic. So like, you know, this is something that like, when I'm talking to people and they'll be like, yeah, but why? But like, what does that mean? And if I don't know what to say, that means I'm just saying something that I've heard and I've not actually internalized it. Right. But I think that's really important. And I think that's a way to keep our society happy, joyous, and free. (laughs) Stop it! (laughs) Um, But thank you, Lowe's. I think this has been really fun. I love this. Happy eight years, by the way. Thank you. And, uh, you know, it's hard to be in a cult and not get culty. It just is. You know, I mean, like, I, I and I only say that because, like, I was so fucked. I needed instructions, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But I, I know what it's like to hear that in a mind that sure. doesn't want to fucking hear about it. Exactly. And I, you guys are fucked if you don't want to hear about it. I'm just kidding. I'm just, there's definitely, you can, there's a million things you can do. Lowe's, it's been great. Chris, thank you for coming. <laughs> Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Oh, and follow Lowe's on Instagram at Brutal Recovery. Yes. Uh, yeah. Come Anything else? Oh, and our Patreon. Uh, yeah, I've got a Patreon. So if you want to uh, hear more of me talking uh, and more of my writing where you get to just read all of the shit I've ever written. Um, I also do guided meditations there. That's something I've no started way. doing. Someone requested that I do a guided meditation, so I did one, so it's a wee series. So if you if you like my voice, if you feel Who soothed, doesn't? Uh, <laughs> me, uh, you can also listen to me uh, not shut up over there. Uh, it's a really fun time. How do they find your Patreon? It is in the link in my bio, my little link. Tell tree. them what the link is. Patreon.com slash brutal recovery. Very nice. Not brittle recovery. Brutal Not brittle, recovery. but brutal. <laughs> it's brittle. <laughs> and thank you, Lowe's. It's been so fun. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious and it's just gotten me through some really hard times and though I'm not clean myself you know it gives me a lot of hope for the future um I really like Dave's song and I'm gonna do a little cover of it here on my banjo hope y'all don't mind too much I wrote a uh, third verse myself sorry about the poor quality it's just on my phone and, uh, sorry about the banjos Things hard to keep in tune. Wanna take a walk around the world? Wonder what it'd do me any good? Till I get some money in my pockets, and I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Wanna take a ride up in the sky Watch as airplanes just pass me by and I wanna see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had 
In my burned out basement listening to the dopey show Home friends I had her on this little radio I keep checking on my pulse because it feels like I might die But the thought straightening up sounds so much better when you're high And I wanna be good so bad So bad, I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. Hope y'all hear this. Makes it through the uh, big inbox of emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. If not, I know it kind of sucks. All right, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.